Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good day, wherever you are in the world today. My name is Herb. I'm an alcoholic. Today we're going to be talking about intentional consciousness. Now that's a fancy name for prayer or meditation or contemplation or mindfulness. A lot of it is pretty much a synonym. We're going to take two aspects of it today and focus on it. When I say we, uh, Dr. Jim Finley will be joining us. Jim Finley is the, how should I put it, the mentor, the teacher that helped me understand actually when I was five years sober, 1989, what meditation is and how to do it and how to approach it. He gave me an insight that allowed me to be consistent since then on a daily practice. I wanna to talk to you about leading up to that insight because the man who took me through the steps gave me the key that unlocked the door to meditation. And I was able to do it because I understood it. But my approach and my attitude toward it were a little cattywampus because I hadn't seen through some things that uh, Dr. Jim Finley helped me a uh, year later. I did the work in 1988, I got sober in 1984. So that's kind of a little bit, and I'll get into the structure of the day here in a minute, but I wanted to sort of introduce the, the panoramic view. Meanwhile, thanks to the Mary and Joseph Retreat Center, they support all the administration uh, for these events that I do, that you participate in on Zoom. And Melissa today is our host from the Retreat Center. Hello to everybody, all the familiar faces, but most especially to the new faces. Thank you so much for being here today to support the Mary Joseph Retreat Center. So just a little bit about our retreat center. We were established in 1963 by the Daughters of Mary and Joseph. We were envisioned by the late sister Mary Ignatius. We are an eight acre campus. We sit on top of this beautiful hill here in Rancho Palos Verdes. And here on our campus, we also have hotel style like bedrooms. So if you wanted to come here and to get away from the hustle and bustle of our busy lives, you can always come here to, to meditate, to reflect here. So that is my segue to introduce Herb. So Herb Kagan has been connected to the Mary Joseph Retreat Center for many years, and he is truly part of our family. His 12-step and centering prayer groups have been extremely popular at the retreat center for decades. And now, since the start of the pandemic, he has moved these popular offerings to Zoom. Thank you so much, Herb. Herb's journey includes seven years in Claritian Seminary, a graduate education in psychology, 40 years in human resources consulting, certification as a spiritual director, 
37 years of active participation in a 12-step fellowship. And then, as I mentioned, he has three publications on spiritual awakening. So thank you so much, Herb. Thanks, Melissa, very much. Um, gosh, wonderful. So also, the structure today. Oh, I'm here to share my knowledge and my experience, and so is Dr. Finley. And sometimes it might feel a little formal, but it's not intended to be. I really want it to be a very enjoyable, relaxed, but productive experience for you, where you get some information, but you also get some experience with it. Um, <clears throat> the schedule has changed just a little bit uh, in that I will uh, be primarily your interface until noon. Dr. Finley will come on right around noon and then he will do his conversation, his sharing, his, ex his exposure and experience with, I bet you he'd call it contemplation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. I'm gonna talk more about meditation and they're diametrically different. Same purpose, different methodology, a different approach. And I mean diametrically different, 180 degrees. That's why when I wrote my book, Practicing the Here and Now, published by Hazleton on 2017, um, I called it intentional consciousness because it covers prayer, meditation, contemplation, centering prayer, mindfulness, the whole panoramic world of consciousness improvement. And so I called it intentional consciousness. But today we're having just really two focuses. Mine is going to be on step 11, primarily meditation. I'll have a couple lines of comment on prayer, but mostly about meditation. <clears throat> and then Jim will come and join us and talk about his wonderful journey. Uh, I was a monk for seven years. He was a monk for six years. Really about the same time. Almost parallel paths, but yet quite different. I was in a monastery from 1957 to 1964, studying to be a Catholic priest, a missionary priest. He was in a monastery, I believe around the same time for six years, <laughs> I think he left in 1966, and he was in Gethsemane in Kentucky. He was a Trappist monk, meaning a solitude, a solitude kind of almost hermit in this, in this place with a group of other men, uh, studying to be a Catholic priest also, but his, his ministry, would, he would never leave the monastery. Now, I had a variety of people that were teachers and mentors for me. It was a great experience. He had one teacher, one mentor, one spiritual director the entire six years, Thomas Merton. <laughs> that may not impress you, but I'll tell you, baby, that really impresses me. <laughs> Thomas Merton was, is, was a prolific writer, uh, probably a prophet, probably a mystic, died in 1968. But uh, Jim really absorbed the spirit of uh, Thomas Merton and once he left the monastery, he began writing about Thomas Merton 
and what he had received from Thomas Merton and then obviously expanded it based on his own experience. So uh, I did, I got sober in 1984, story for a different day. I did the steps in 1988, a story for a different day. But in that process, the man who took me through the steps gave me the key that unlocked the door to meditation. I had left the monastery in 1964. I didn't meditate again for another 25 years. Some of you have heard me say this before, because it's my experience. I took my black robe off, hung it on the peg. Monks wear a black robe, in, at least in my experience. And monks meditate. So when I took the black robe off, I stopped meditating because I was no longer a monk. Well, what it tells me now in retrospect is I didn't know what meditation was. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't have any value from it. There was no benefit. That's why it was easy for me to take my black robe off and to stop meditating for the next 25 years. <laughs> An amazing experience. But then in 1988, a man took me through the steps from 1 through 12 in, a, in about a year not a step a month, but uh, it took a year to finish those 12 steps. And I'm going to share with you what his instruction to me was about step 11, which opened the door. I've not had a problem with meditation since 1988. Daily meditator, going from five minutes now to probably a 30 minute sit, going from a sit once a day to probably... A sit a couple times a day, more often than not, and an awareness and a consciousness today that's developed very uh, robustly over these years. In 1989, I was having trouble with meditation. You may not be following the chronology, but it's really important to me, not important to you. But in 1988, I understood and started practicing meditation. In 1989, I had some problems with it. I went to Jim Finley. Eventually, I went to lots of people, but I went to Jim Finley. He, I had been on a retreat with him as part of my journey in the mid-80s of seeking spiritual help. And, and he impressed me as a man with deep understanding and experience with the spiritual path. He's not in a 12-step program. At that time, he knew very little about a 12-step program. In fact, perhaps my exposure to him was his beginning of opening up to an understanding of the 12-step program. More about that later. But he solved my problem with meditation and allowed me to understand the training that I received from Father Thomas Keating at that time in that year, 1989, concerning centering prayer, which is a contemplation contemplative practice. If some of those words sound a little bit vague and, and uh, you don't really kind of connect up, you will by the time we're through today between myself and Jim Finley. So just make notes and hang on. The picture is forming. Well, let's begin with you asking yourself a question. The question is so important. It's much more important than the answer. 
Because if you don't have the question and you get an answer, you've got no place to put it. But if you get an, a, 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 a curtain-rending question and you hold it and let it percolate an asked but unanswered question, you'll be taken to a new experience. These are words and concepts that I received from one of my other teachers, Father Richard Rohr. He's a Franciscan priest, R-O-H-R. Again, I believe he's a prophet and a mystic. He's still living in uh, Albuquerque. He has a retreat center there. He's got many books. Actually, he knows very little, knew very little about the 12-step culture and methodology. But over time, he got some exposure to it, and he wrote his own book from his spiritual perspective on the 12-step program and the spirituality of the 12 steps that he called breathing underwater worthwhile reading ah the question why are you here yeah yeah no it's not a throwaway question and i and i'm not kidding i want you to ask yourself so what motivated you to take the time to register to pay the money then to show up We've had people register who don't show up, but here you are, you've shown up. Obviously, you're highly motivated on a Saturday to give up two, three hours, whatever you plan on dedicating here. Why are you here? What are you expecting? What are you hoping for? A word or a phrase or a full sentence just to get it grounded. And perhaps at the end of the time together, you can look back and see if your expectation was met. But I found it very helpful to ask a question. Here's the second question. There's no right or wrong answer to any of the questions I ever answer. They're more stimulus for you to think about the question and to think about your knowledge and to think about your experience and to try to bring it into some focus and some consciousness. But here's the second question, which is the subject of the day. What is meditation? For you, no right or wrong answer. And every one of you will have a variety of answers, a variety of knowledge from your readings and exposure to training and teachers, and a, a variety of experiences with it. Or none at all, if in fact you're brand new to the whole concept. What is meditation? See, from my standpoint now, you have begun meditating. Today, right now. My definition of meditation comes from the dictionary. Because the man who took me through the steps asked me to look up the word in a dictionary. If you haven't done that, I highly recommend it. And maybe more than one dictionary. And look at all the definitions. The man, this man who took me through the steps in 1988, he said to me, Herb, you have a lot of information, 
I mean, seven years in seminary, seven years of a graduate education and exposure to philosophy and theology. And since then, you have a graduate education in psychology. And now you're four years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous going to step studies and book studies. You have an incredible amount of information. 1988, four years sober. He said, but you have very little transformation. The knowledge that you've accumulated is really wonderful, but it's never been filtered through your heart to your feet and you have not changed. Oh, you're sober. That's a gift of grace, but you haven't changed and you didn't know that you needed to and you didn't know how to change and you didn't know what to change. He quoted Einstein, the consciousness that created the problem cannot be the consciousness that solves the problem. If you've been exposed to me at all, you probably have memorized that. Brilliant. My mind cannot solve the problem of my mind when it's defective because any solution a defective mind comes up with will have a def defect built into it. And so I've recently changed the set-aside prayer. It's not a throwaway prayer. Don't throw away your knowledge and your experience. Your knowledge and experience is important, or at least some aspects of it are. What's helpful and what's not? What's true and what's false? This is a prayer. A prayer is not words, prayer is an intention. Please hear that. I will repeat it later on. Step 11 says prayer and meditation are, are the technology, are the tools sought through prayer and meditation. I'm quoting, sought through prayer and meditation, sought. Look at that first word. This is not a passive process this is a very active process sought i'm a seeker i prided myself on being a seeker i've been a seeker since i was probably 10 or 11 years old i can i can i won't but i could give you the picture of me at 10 or 11 years old in a church having an experience that set me on a path of seeking seeking and I prided myself, I'm a seeker. I went into the monastery seeking. I came out and I used the marijuana and Johnny Walker Black Label and LSD because I'm a seeker of the 60s and the 70s. I mean, that's what we did, didn't we? And I continued seeking. I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I did what you do, get a sponsor and go to meetings and go to step studies and go to book studies, work the steps. Unfortunately, I worked them on my own without any help, the blind leading the blind. And I didn't know that I didn't know. And I had no experience with it. I did not change. But I bet that man who said, information versus transformation and he talked about 
setting aside that information and that experience that I'd had up to then, because he said it blocks you from any new information and new experience. He quoted from the big book at the bottom of page 58. Some of us have tried to hold on to our old ideas and the result was nil until we let go absolutely. Well, of course you can't let go absolutely. Absolutely not. So we have the intention of having a gift of an open mind and an open heart. An open mind to know, an open heart to take the action and to be empowered to take that action. If you haven't been around me in the last year, I changed this set-aside prayer. I uh, substituted for the word brokenness, unmanageability, that second half of the first step. I feel this, at least in my experience, it's more appropriate. It's more accurate. Prayer is not about words. It's about intention. My intention is to be given the gift of spiritual intervention. That my mind and my heart will be opened, will be opened. And I'm willing to have it opened. I can't do it on my own. Please join me. Thoughtfully about the intention here. Whether you pray out loud or pray quietly or don't pray at all, but commit to, for at least for the next three hours, having an open mind and an open heart. Having a clean whiteboard, inviting that life force of the universe to write on it so that you'll have new knowledge and new experience. God. Please set aside everything I think I know about myself, my unmanageability, my spiritual path, and you. For an open mind and a new experience with myself, my unmanageability, my spiritual path, and especially you. So again, ask yourself some questions. Where's your life not working? Quality, not necessarily quantity. Quality, where is your life not meeting the quality standards that you would like? How effective have you been in achieving what it is you want? Perhaps at least serenity, maybe even some joy, possibly even some happiness. How effective? Do you really want to change? Sometimes change can be quite scary because we realize we don't control it. That set-aside prayer set me on a path of my life being changed without much of my input to the potential outcome. I just had to sit back and watch the movie. Do you have any idea what you would like to change or what you would like to have changed? Notice your willingness is what would you like to change, but your willingness implies with the set-aside attitude, the intervention of grace. 
what would you like to have changed? When I look back over my shoulder, I realize that that spiritual awakening definition, an accurate definition of spiritual awakening that is promised in the 12th step, having had a spiritual awakening, is a change in the way I think and feel and behave, and it's done to me, not by me. Spiritual intervention. And I added about five years ago, done to me, not by me, but not without me. That co-creation of an experience, co-creation, my willingness and spirit's grace. A mystery that I cannot solve. I was taken to a place of willingness. Hear the grace of that. Uh, but I was willing to be taken. Here, my willingness, my contribution, my effort. You've heard me say probably before, if you've had any exposure to me, the spiritual math. Regular math is one plus one equals two. Spiritual math, one plus one equals five. Because I'm taken to a place that I cannot achieve because I don't even know it exists. How can I get there from here when I don't know where there is and I don't know how to get there? And yet, if I were to summarize where I'm at today is I cannot get here from there. A spiritual awakening and a life that flourishes. So what's your invitation? I love that phrase. I, I start every morning at the end of my meditation practice. I say the mm, seven-step prayer because I love the way it ends. As I go out from here to do your will, to do your bidding. And I ask myself the question, what's the invitation today? I'm open. I might not get an answer at that point. I might not get an answer all day long. But when I do just a little radar sweep in the evening, perhaps I'll discover that I had responded in a way to an invitation I didn't expect to get and that I didn't even know I was responding to. Now, if you've just participated in this process, you've just meditated. Meditation is directed thinking. I have been directing you with these questions to think. Maybe you just thought, maybe you thought and wrote. Maybe it expanded your consciousness and or some feelings and some awareness about your life right now. Maybe. The skeleton of my experience has come from the 12-step spirituality. And I'm saying skeleton because it's a methodology that's a human methodology for transformation. I had plenty of information before I got to the 12-step program. Once I was able to have an experience with the 12 steps and begin to change and be open in my mind and my heart, that prior information and experience became relevant and I had a place to hang it. I put flesh on the skeleton. 
And since then, I've put more flesh on the skeleton. I'm a dilettante Buddhist in the sense that I read Buddhist literature and experience because it's as close to the 12-step culture as any human development or spiritual practice is based on my experience. They also don't have any rules and they call their process a way of life like we do. But I'm open to all of the traditions and all of the human development knowledge and experience to incorporate it then, but I hang it on the 12-step skeleton. When I got to step 11, I, I, he asked me to really read it, pay attention to it, and he went through it with me as I've begun to do with you. Sought. There's so much misinformation about meditation. There's so much innuendo or maybe outright suggestion that it's passive. Not step 11, like step three. Step three is not passive. Made a decision to turn. I use the phrase, it's ferociously active. Made a decision with my free will to turn. Step 11, sought. made a decision to move your feet through prayer and meditation. Well, there's the rub. What is that? There's two things there. Bill's a wordsmith. He put two words in. He must mean two things. What is prayer? What is meditation? We'll talk some more about that. But here's the only reason for step 11. Hello, I will come back to this. Please pay attention. It's right here. The purpose, the vision statement. To improve my conscious contact. Stay with it. I repeat step 11 every morning at the beginning of my practice. I might say the set-aside prayer at the beginning. I normally use a very informal adaptation of the set-aside prayer. Holy Spirit, release me from up till now. Detach me from after now. And allow me to be fully present in the now. That last phrase being the key. Allow me to be fully present in this present moment. But then I repeat, literally, step 11, so that I remind myself why I'm even here. Why am I dedicating this time, this morning, for this practice? To improve my conscious contact. Ah, with God as we understand God, of course. That's the wonderful phrase that gives such freedom in the 12-step culture. I've translated it a little bit because I think it's helpful to say, with God as I don't understand God. 
I made a big effort for a long time, seven years in the monastery, to understand God. I had theology that was just wonderful and a great foundation. But when I did the steps with this mound, I, I found that my information and my religious tradition were the very impediment to my relationship with the mystery. The knowledge I had, the experience that I had up until 1988 was the very blockage to any effective relationship with power. And I saw that I was an agnostic, not, not intellectual, a practical agnostic. My head was really solid with regard to understanding. It just never translated to my feet. I was not the Renaissance man that I thought I was. I was a Neanderthal, and this man made that statement, actually. And then the step 11 prays at the, at the end of step 11, recognizing the two things that make us specifically human. It's, it's such a powerful summary. What makes us specifically human? That we have a mind that knows. Praying for knowledge of God's will. I need to know better. But we all know that we know better and don't do better. So Bill, in wonderful intuition, includes the power to carry that out. I have free will, but in many areas, it's not free. It's not free in addiction, and it's not free in unmanageability. And I didn't know that, and I didn't know that I didn't know that until I began to know that I didn't know and eventually knew that I knew. And I'm not trying to be poetic or cute. I am trying to capture my experience a progress, not perfection, a process, not a task. So just to recap, who are we as human beings? And this is not, uh, <laughs> um, incidental information. This is a very intentional comment to help us prepare to do meditation effectively, to understand what it is and how to do it. Sure, I have a body, but so does a carrot. So does a cat. Bodies do not make me specifically human. How do I differ from a carrot and from a cat? I have a mind, a mind that knows. I have three brains. I'm not going to do a teaching on the brain. That's not relevant. But to understand the structure allows us to understand our function. I have a brain stem, that first brain, which manages my body. I have a second brain, the limbic system, which helps manage the emotions in that body. But then I have a cortex and a neocortex that third development. This is millions and millions and millions of years of evolution finally 
human beings have consciousness. We call it mind. There's no organ that's a mind, although the function resides in the cortex and neocortex, that third brain. And we have free will. We're the only sentient beings that know that we know and that can make voluntary choices. That's what makes us specifically human and civilized. That we can know what's right and we can do what's right. Now, many of us have the experience of knowing what's right, but not doing what's right. Bill calls that unmanageability. He calls it a spiritual malady. Addiction's a problem. It's just not the problem. Well, what's the problem with addiction? Step one, of course, I'm not going through the steps, but I'm, set, I'm laying the groundwork for a really, uh, under, uh, uh, the reason why we need to understand and the reason why we need to practice meditation. It's not a throwaway line because I want to be spiritual. It's that I want to live. Basically, I want to live because I have an addiction and I don't have sufficient power to deal with my addiction that first half of the first step. Bill says that's a problem. It's just not the problem. The problem is our powerlessness of unmanageability. No choice. We become brain dead to the word powerlessness. Use the term no choice. In addiction, once I start, I cannot stop. In addiction, once I stop, I cannot stay stopped. It's that simple. It's that subtle. It's that real. No choice. But one year sober, 10 years sober, 20 years sober, I might be restless, irritable, and discontent. That's that unmanageability. That's that spiritual malady. That's that self-will run riot. At the end of step nine on page 84, Bill says, we enter the world of the spirit. Where have we been? We've been in the world of self. And steps one through nine are the deflation of the ego at depth. And then on page 84, he says, after we finish the ninth step, we're placed in a position of neutrality with regard to our addiction. But here's the best kept secret in the rooms, and you've heard me say it recently if you've been around me in the last year, because it's become my cause celeb. The best kept secret in the rooms is what is unmanageability? What does it mean not cured? What does it mean daily reprieve? Not with regard to our addiction, but with regard to our unmanageability, the human condition, which Bill describes so aptly on pages on page 62 those two first paragraphs selfishness self-centeredness that we think is the root of our trouble and at the end of that second paragraph and we can't even reduce it much by wishing or trying on our own power we need help we're not cured by the time we finish the ninth step We've been placed in a position of neutrality with regard to our addiction, but we're not cured of our unmanageability. We have a daily reprieve. I wonder if he meant daily. Maybe that's why he used the word. 
from Jim Finley, I learned the word practice. We practice step 10. We practice step 11. We practice step 12, meaning principles and helping. It's a practice. This is what it looks like behaviorally, unmanageability. The men had me take the bedevilments on page 52 and turn them into personal pronouns and present tense. I am having trouble with personal relationships. Again, another meditation if you choose to do so. I can't control my emotional nature. I am a prey to misery and depression. I can't make a living when I was doing this work. I took it into meditation. And that small whispering intuition said, you can't make a living that satisfies you because you're a, a black hole. There is no bottom to your level of thirst and hunger for power and prestige and money and pleasure for your sober. I have a feeling of uselessness. I am full of fear. I am unhappy. I can't seem to be of real help to other people. And again, that whispering sound said, you can't be of real help to other people. You don't really want to help other people. You want the reputation of helping people. And I got a new insight to what I was beginning to see as narcissism, a personality disorder that's irre 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 irremediable. <laughs> it can't be fixed with therapy and or medication. And yet my organic and intrinsic narcissism has been modified by this spiritual practice since 1988. And I'm a more considerate person and I'm a more sensitive person and I'm a more person who organically wants to help people and think about helping people in comparison to my previous attitudes and behavior. At the end of that second paragraph, Bill says on page 62, we can't even reduce it much by wishing or trying on our own power, selfishness, self-centeredness, self-will run riot. So <laughs> this is the assumption of step 11. No, I'm, I'm, I'm creating a build here. As you know, I like context and I like to build to give a sense, sense of the, a solid foundation and structure to step 11. Of course, steps two and three are the assumptions. What is it that you believe? That was a question. That wasn't a throwaway line. What do you actually believe about power? What's that life force 
that takes the acorn to become an oak tree. I got this from Dr. Berger, who most of you are familiar with, I co-facilitate emotional sobriety with. But it captures it. There's no spirituality necessary here in the sense of mysterious and or religious. We can come to grips with this just on the plane of common sense. What brings the acorn to become an oak tree? That organismic life force is what he calls it. Am I a fish in water? A fish doesn't know what water is. It can't survive outside of water, but it has no consciousness that it's in water. It's a pretty good metaphor, but it has its limitations, as most metaphors do. This would have a, from my standpoint, a dualistic implication, the fish and water, two different realities. So I actually like this metaphor better, a wave in the ocean. A wave is not the ocean. A wave rises out of the ocean, and in some cases of a tsunami, it might be 100 feet high, and it might last for 20 days. The wave is not the ocean, but the wave is not not the ocean. It's a particularly wonderful poetic image. I am not God. I'm very clear on that. But intuitively, I know I am not not God. The spark of the divine, the image and likeness, the imago dei, all the words that people use to try to capture the mystery. The word spirit comes from the Greek word spiros, meaning breath. Carl Jung said, when he wrote a letter to Bill Wilson, alcoholics addicts, he could have said, he said alcoholics because he was addressing Bill Wilson, but he could have said addicts of any kind. He could have actually said human beings of all kinds are uniquely spiritual. They have this deep, deep, deep hunger and thirst for the spirit, and they get distracted by spirits. Spirit with a capital S, spirits with a small s, a wonderful play on words. And then he has a Latin phrase at the end of the letter, spiritus contra spiritu, the spirit, capital S, is the antidote to spirits, small ass. And he sent Roland Hazard to find a spiritual experience. And that's why Bill calls Carl Jung the spiritual father of Alcoholics Anonymous. Looking for the spirit, looking for the spiritual awakening, looking for the breath. Make a decision. That's the silver bullet of Alcoholics Anonymous or of any 12-step program. There are no rules. There are only suggestions. And the suggestion here is you choose. What is power for you? One, do you need power? Is that your experience from step one? 
Do you need power? And number two, what do you choose? Bill says it on page 53, God is or God isn't, what is your choice? There's no certitude, there's no feeling. He said we're confronted with the question of faith. You might want to look that word up, faith. Very empty, very invisible, very dark, very thin, very non-substantial faith. It's merely a decision, but it is a decision. God is. Well, then the rubber meets the road and you're invited to act as if your decision was correct based on reality. And that becomes your trust. Faith is the decision. Trust is your action. And the next action you're invited to take is step three. We've seen that we're going against the life force with our instincts gone awry, our self-will run riot. We go against the life force. I call it we're out of alignment. And the whole point of step three is to be in alignment, to turn from self-will with my free will to turn and place my will in alignment with. Please hear step three correctly. We do not turn our will and our life over to God. That's not what step three says. We make a decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God. Hugely different. It's like getting in my car, having an address, knowing where I want to go, but not knowing how to get there putting the address in the GPS, and then following direction. I turn my will and my life over to the GPS, to the care of the GPS, to the direction of the deep, and I receive the guidance. And if I follow the guidance, I will get to where I'm going. It's a really apt example. Very powerful. That's why we do meditation. The Oxford group said the primary purpose of meditation was guidance. That's why they did it in the morning. Guidance. What am I being asked to do today to be a decent human being? And Bill gives us some inventory at night in step 11 to see, so how did you do? And what do you think you need to do better tomorrow? It's that simple. Step three is the decision for a relationship. So ask yourself, as you did with step two, you asked, what is it that I believe? Or maybe you asked yourself, what do I want? Because I, I, I don't know what I believe. At this moment, anyway. Ask yourself, what do you want to believe? What do you need to believe? What's the concept that you need right now, this moment, at 11 o'clock here in Los Angeles on a Saturday morning? 
power, certainly. And with an eye on step three, caring, possibly. What relationship do you want? What relationship do you need? What relationship do you yearn for? Oh, I love the word yearn for. It reaches down into my soul, the marrow of my bones. Since I was 10, 11 years old, I've had this fire in my belly. What do you yearn for in a relationship? Bill doesn't say it that way, but he gives us five relationships on pages 62 and 63. You can find those there. He gives us models of a relationship. I just put it into words. Step three is about a relationship with power. What relationship do you need? What relationship do you want? What do you yearn for in this relationship with the breath, with the spirit, with the power? with the organismic life force. Power, what does it mean? I don't on my own have sufficient power to deal effectively with my addiction. I don't have sufficient power on my own power to deal effectively with my life. I need to be empowered in my life and I need to be protected from my addiction. That's why we do step 11. To have a relationship with power. Bill says in step 10, page 84, we enter the world of the spirit. Again, that model of the human being. Each of the steps is modeled after that. All of the steps are modeled after that. All of the even steps are knowing steps of the mind. All of the odd steps are decision and action steps of the will. It's not what the big book says, but it's certainly my interpretation of it. Try it out. Take a look. All of the even steps are naming steps. All of the odd steps are action steps built specifically for human transformation. In step 10, he says, we're placed in a position of neutrality. After the ninth step, neutrality, we have recovered the past tense. Neutrality, that's physical sobriety, guaranteed by finishing the ninth step. By finishing the ninth step, ask yourself, have I finished my ninth step? Made all the amends? to all the people that I've harmed, living and dead, available and unavailable, those I should see, those I shouldn't see, those I can't see because I didn't even know their names or I don't know where they are. I have finished my amends all four times I went through the steps because the men who guided me were mechanics with the big book and the experience. And they helped me be creative and step outside the box and finish all of my amends. But I'm not cured. I have a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. 
This is the entrance into emotional sobriety. Do I have a sense of well-being? Do I have contentment? I'm inviting you to some more meditation, some directed thinking. These are the questions that direct your thinking. Look at your life today. Today, right now, as you're sitting here listening to what's going on here, how's the quality of your life? I'm not asking about your addiction. I'm not asking about your time of abstinence and freedom from alcohol and or drugs and or your process and or your substance addiction. Nice, but not relevant here. How are you doing with regard to the manageability of your life? How are you doing with regard to your alignment with reality as it's evolving and unfolding, manifesting? Do I have a sense of serenity? Do I have a sense of joy? Do I have a sense of happiness? More often than not. Now, there's times of grief, of course, and sadness. Life is filled with speed bumps, but this program gives us the shock absorbers to deal effectively with the speed bumps. It might take a month, six months, two years, as most of you know, my wife died. My wife of 52 years died three years ago. I was two years in process of that major speed bump. But around two years, I did feel like I was walk on level, walking back on level ground. It hadn't thrown me off the path, but it had made it a little rockier. Bill talks about entering the world of the spirit, and this is our way of life. We clear the channel with inventory on a spot check basis. Step 10 isn't done at night. Step 10 isn't done in writing. Please understand the tool. It's like your cell phone. You carry it with you, and it's a tool to be used when you want to communicate. Step 10 is a tool when you want to get clean because you're disturbed. And he says in the 12 and 12, it's a spiritual axiom. Whenever you're disturbed, there's something wrong with you. Something's amiss in your spiritual life if you're disturbed. We sit in the morning in prayer and meditation to fill the channel. And at night when we retire to do inventory again, not in writing, it's a meditation inventory, a radar sweep of your day. What did I do that needs to be corrected and what can I do better, basically? And of course, then living this way of life, emptying the channel, allowing the grace and the life and the sunlight of the spirit in us to seep out through us to the people around us. Step 11, sought through prayer and meditation. Okay, let's take a look at prayer. I've hammered this home. I'm hoping you're hearing it. It's not about words. Whether they're out loud or quiet, you don't even need the words. It's about an intimate conversation because you're establishing a relationship. 
Obviously, steps two and three are the assumptions that you have some decision and some consciousness of your decision. Try praying slowly. When I'm in a 12-step meeting and or in church, the approach to prayer is awful. It's so robotic and rote, meaningless, empty, banging of a drum. Prayer is a conscious effort at a relationship. Well, what is it that you believe? Again, the benefit of our 12-step culture is that it's totally your decision. Totally your decision. And if, in fact, done effectively like that, prayer itself is meditative. You're having conscious contact. Step two says that we have constant contact. Step three is the first effort at conscious contact, making a decision to turn to a caring power. Prayer is the continuation of that consciousness. What about meditation? This is the heart of the matter today. Pages 85 to 88, the man had me read it. If you haven't read pages 85 to 88 in the big book, read it. Highlight it. Look up words like meditation, like prayer. Bill starts out with inventory, for God's sakes. My compulsive nature, my sense of order is offended. No, 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 Bill, you should start with the morning, go to the afternoon, go to the evening. That's order. No, Bill starts out in the evening when we retire at night. He has those questions. I'm not going to go through the book. You can do that on your own. Because that's not the point of today. Today is to get a real sense of what is the meditation and how to do it and what's the purpose of it. That evening review is like a radar sweep. I sit down and I just take a look at my day. It might take a minute. It might take five or 10. I don't have any rigidity about that. I do a radar sweep of my day to see if there's any blip on the radar screen in terms of my insensitivity, my lack of consideration, or my outright offense and harm of other people. What can I do better tomorrow? The inventory in step 11 at night is a meditation. And it's not all about liabilities. There are some things about assets. What did I do well? Or what could I improve tomorrow? He talks about having it as a constructive, not a destructive effort. Because it's not about judging and punishing. It's about ever improving. Remember on page 60 at the end of the steps, he says, we're not saints, but we want to be better. We want to make progress. We never want to be perfect because that's silliness. No, no, it's, sil it's also close to mental illness. Our perfectionist is that's a neurotic disorder. 
It's a lack of a sense of reality. We're material beings. All material is corruptible. All material is corruptible. By definition, it has a beginning and it has an end. Nothing material can be perfect. It's interesting on page 53, Bill says, God is or God isn't. What is your choice? And then he says, God is everything or God is nothing. There's unconditional being, unconditional love, because there's no conditions, because there's no material. Bill talks about the fourth dimension, fourth dimension. Okay, what's the first three dimensions? If Bill talks about the fourth dimension as the world of spirit, oh, that must be the world of material, height, width, and depth, 3D movies. Fourth dimension is the invisible, immaterial world. Pay attention to the words. Bill was a beautiful poet and very accurate with the use of his words. But then in the morning was my favorite. He says, upon awakening, we ask God to direct our thinking. We think about the 24 hours a day. We consider our plans for the day. That's it right in a nutshell. I read that, I highlighted that, and this man said to me, all right, we ask God to direct our thinking. He said, Herb, that's a prayer. Anytime you're talking to God, it's a prayer. It's a simple prayer, Herb. God, please direct my thinking. I hope you're hearing this, because that's the simplicity of it. That's how I start my meditation. God, or I might say Holy Spirit, or I might say mystery, or I might say Father, or I might say Lord. It doesn't matter. It depends on my mood that morning. Direct my thinking. I'm asking for help. Bill gives us then two instructions. Think about the 24 hours ahead. Consider our plans for the day. Bill is a very careful wordsmith. If there are two sentences, he must mean two different actions. That's my interpretation. There is no interpretation in the big book. There's no definition of what Bill means in the big book. Think about the 24 hours ahead. Consider your plans for the day. But I make up my mind as to what they mean for me. Think outside the box. Make it personal. Think about the 24 hours ahead. I interpret to be my calendar, my, my um, work schedule, my, my daily schedule. I look into uh, my book even sometimes I have it with me. What, what do I have on the agenda today as activities, as uh, appointments? Is there anything in the radar sweep of the activity of the day that is contrary to my principles. Yeah, no, hardly ever. All right, but there's a second question. Consider my plans for the day. The big book doesn't say what I'm about to say. Neither does the 12 and 12. It's, it's I made it up. The man who took me through the steps didn't give me this instruction. He said, figure out what you think it means. 
think about the 24 hours a day is what am I going to uh, do today? Therefore, in contrast, consider my plans for the day is who am I going to be today? Last night when I did my review, I saw I was inconsiderate yesterday. So today I'm committing to being considerate. Yesterday I was insensitive. Today I'll be, cons I'll be sensitive. Yesterday I was very scattered. Today I will be much more mindful. So normally my consciousness the, the, in the morning is to deal with the character defect du jour. What was the deficiency in my spiritual nature yesterday? I'm going to be considerate of that and attempt to counterbalance that, to get the scale, the balance of scale, the justice scale, in terms of in alignment with reality, in alignment with my perception of the flow of life. Now, that's all what's in the big book, and that's my interpretation and the direction I got. Here's what's not in the big book, was the, but it was the direction from this man that was the key that unlocked the door to meditation. As I mentioned to you, 1988, I hadn't meditated in 25 years since I left the monastery. And now I'm going through this understanding of meditation. God, please direct my thinking, then begin thinking, then begin considering a very active process of the use of my mind, a very much engagement of my mind to be logical, to be thinking, to be discerning, to be reflecting. And then this man said, and now listen to your thinking as the answer to your prayer. This is the medium of the message. This may be the medium of the message. This may be the channel through which God speaks to you. This may be the way that God communicates to you. He's, he's not saying black and white. He's just saying, consider this, explore this, try this, experiment with this. God doesn't speak to me through my ears. I've never once in all my life heard God speak audibly. But after this, I could, I could hear the small whispering sound. By the way, the, the wee the tiny wee voice is a mistranslation. I, I don't read Aramaic, but I read people who read and translate some of the original stuff. It's not the tiny, uh, the wee small voice. That's what we hear all the time, wee small voice. No, the actual translation, the accurate translation is tiny whispering sound. Subtle, but quite different. Tiny, whispering sound. That's why we get quiet. To listen, not to be empty. There was a whole group of people that came from the East in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, India, Tibet, China, Japan. And their wonderful teachers talked about emptiness and distance from the mind and quieting the mind and eliminating the mind, and they called it meditation. English was their second language. They hadn't looked up the word in the dictionary. 
what they're talking about is contemplation. This is what Jim Finley will be talking about this after uh, a little bit later. He'll be talking about the whole practice of contemplation. Meditation is directed thinking. That's in our dictionary. The commercial dictionary. Meditation is directed thinking. Look up contemplation. It comes from the Latin templare, which means temple space, the house of the divine, the cathedral, the church, the tabernacle, the mosque, the synagogue, whatever the chapel is, the house of God. Contemplare, temple space, this is where the divine resides and we sit in that temple space, contemplare to be in the presence of the presence with a capital P. That was a bit of an aside. So back here with meditation, I ask God to direct my thinking. Then I begin thinking, listening to my thoughts. Now, it's much better if you've done a fourth and fifth step so that you can distinguish between your ego and unhealthy dysfunctional beliefs and motives and true inspirations, inspirations, spiros, the breath of God in me. Perhaps that's why step 11 comes after steps four through nine. Bill says four through nine are for the deflation of the ego at depth. I enter into the world of the spirit, then I can hear the breath the world of spiros, the world of God, the world, the world of inspiration and intuition and instinct. And then all day long, he says, be aware of and pause when agitated. That's the 10th step, pause when agitated. That might be where people get a little confused about the use of the 10th step. The 10th step is not, as I interpret it, to be used at night or in writing. The 12 and 12 confirms that the step 10 is a spot check inventory. So let's go back to step 11. So meditation, what is it? It's thinking and listening to our thinking. Why do we do it? Well, not for biology. I hear people say, well, because it, it reduces my stress and it makes me healthier. Well, that's great. And the science is in, it does. Some people say, well, for my emotional well-balance and my uh, uh, emotional health. And wonderful. That's exactly what will happen. The science is in. The research is conclusive. If you want better relationships with yourself and with life and with people, Meditate, but that's not why we do step 11. We do, we do meditation step 11 because of theology, for spiritual health, for a relationship with the spirit, with a relationship with the power other than ourself. How do we do it? Well, Bill says in the 12 and 12, we can use reading. If you have a little difficult time sitting quietly, sitting still and being thoughtful rather than distractive, he said, use the prayer of St. Francis. 
and read a word and or a phrase and listen to what does it have to say to you? Some people call that reaction of our body an instinct. He also says, pay attention, think with our mind. Perhaps people call that intuition. Perhaps using our will to pay, to be very clear in our intention to improve our conscious contact and to receive guidance as inspiration. How do we do it? To the best of our ability. And so I mentioned that I had this experience in 1988 where this man revealed to me this key to how to, how to meditate, ask God to direct my thinking, then begin thinking, listening to my thinking, listening to my feelings, listening to my sensations, listening to my awareness, listening intently to see what's going on as the possibility of guidance. And I had no problem starting with five minutes, building it to 15 minutes, which was my goal. And um, after about six months of 15 minutes a day, I, I realized I was bored. Yeah, I'd gotten it. I was doing it. I was sitting there. I had no problems spending the time thinking, but I was bored with it. So I talked to a variety of people and I went to, finally, as I mentioned to Jim Finley, and he didn't know much about the 12-step process at that time. I explained a little bit about it. it. took about 45 minutes to give him a summary of steps one through 11, where I was. And he said, oh, I get it. All right. So, Herb, you're a very task-oriented person. You have a big book. You've read it. You've highlighted it. You've looked up the dictionary. You've got all kinds of understanding, and now you have uh, an outline of a practice and you practice your practice and you have a chair and you there and a timer and a bell and all of the accoutrements of meditation and by God, you're going to meditate. He said, take a deep breath. Meditation is not a task to be accomplished. You're very task oriented. Meditation isn't an event. It's a process. It's an experience. Try this, Herb. You're as powerless over your spiritual life as you are over alcohol, step one. Try this, Herb. You're as powerless over your meditation as you are over alcohol having no power at all. Sit in the presence of power, humbled by your powerlessness. You're responsible for the effort and the results are none of your business. There's only two mistakes that you can make, not show up and leave early. Oh my God, it was so simple. I'm responsible for the effort. The cement weight of making something happen, either my spirituality or my meditation, just dropped off my shoulders because I heard it and I believed that I accepted it, what he said. I'm responsible for the effort. 
the results are none of my business. The only mistake I can make is not show up and leave early. He said, set a, set a timer if you're concerned about and distracted by whether you're there too long or too little and the freeways and the work and what, whatever. He said, set a timer. If you're going to meditate for five minutes, set the timer. The timer tells you when you're done. You don't have to think about it. If you're going to meditate for 10 minutes, set it for 10 minutes. The timer tells you when you're done. If you're going to set it for 20 minutes. And by the way, most meditation teachers in all traditions of the practice of consciousness building suggest that you build to a point where you have a minimum 20 minutes a day. 20 minutes. It's not a mandate. It's not a rule, it's not a regulation, it's just a suggestion. If you're gonna sit for 20 minutes and set your alarm for 20 minutes and the alarm tells you when you're done. It was just so, I was so relieved on, on walking out of his office. Then he said to me, oh, Herb, Herb, by, I had my hand on the door, it was open. Herb, if you wanna know if your meditation is effective, after three months of daily meditation, ask your wife how you're treating her. Pay attention to how you treat service personnel in a retail store or in the airport. Pay attention to how you're driving on the freeway because your behavior will tell you whether your meditation is effective. You'll become a more sensitive person. You'll become a more aware of person. You'll become a more considerate person you'll be a better and more decent human being over time. It was an amazing experience. And that's why I'm honored to have him come and join us today. One of my favorite metaphors is that we do meditation to become a lantern. The lantern is the best symbol, I think, for sponsorship or for being helpful. I'm not the light, but to the extent that I have light in me, I can spread the light. To the extent that I keep the lenses clear, the light is communicated more effectively. I mentioned before, step 12, spiritual awakening. A change in the way we think and feel and behave. See, this is all areas of our three brains. Behave comes from the brain stem, our body. Feel comes from our limbic system, the emotions. Thinking and deciding come from our cortex, that third brain. We're changed radically in every way. Done to me, not by me, but not without me. A co-creation a collaboration, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe, Bill says on page 75. Let's take a minute to think about that. I'm going to read the promises on page 75. That's the promises after the fifth step. I encourage you to stay for that and reflect on it. I'm also going to give us about a 
three minute, maybe four minute, five minute, a five minute break. Once I finish with the meditation, um, spend as much time as you want in the reflection and come back in five minutes and we'll pick it up for Q&A with me. And then in about 15 minutes, uh, Jim will um, join us and talk about that other part of this consciousness practice. And you'll see it's a very, well, at least from my standpoint, it's a very different practice than meditation. Meditation is the use of my mind to think. Contemplation is the use of my will to sit in the presence, allowing my will to be placed in alignment with that presence. Once we have taken the fifth step, we are delighted. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. We feel we are on the broad highway, capital B, capital H. We feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe.
here we are back again. And um, I'm inviting you to ask questions of me at this point of anything that I've said or haven't said or make a point of anything that you want to make a point of in terms of your understanding and your experience. About staying with the radical unknowing yeah. of the mystery of God and uh, all the answers we we don't have. And so what came to my mind as we were walking through step 11 here was how can we know God in all of the unknowing of being human as it relates to step 11? So I'm not sure what the practical question is here. Is it simply how do we know God? Well, we can't. We, you know, any anything that we know, of course, is going to be very limited by the fact that we're limited. Whatever this is, this thing that is symbolized by the word G-O-D, because the word G-O-D is not God. The word G-O-D is a symbol for that reality for which there is no adequate symbol. If you want to take a real look at uh I think the best word that comes close to summarizing what I just said very succinctly, look up the word ineffable. But whatever this, and that's why I love the term mystery, which is what you use. There's, there's a mystery here. I don't need to know what it is. I just need to believe and act as if it's true. And then when I look back over my shoulder, I'm happy with the outcome. So I don't even know whether it's true or not. But I'm not changing anything because my life works. I'm not sure that's an answer to your question, but ask some more if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, I think along the lines of praying for knowledge of his will for us right. and the power to carry that out. Right. So within the, you know, we come to know God through these 12 steps, the unconditional love. Yeah. And, and you know, like, what is the the way in which we can touch that knowledge concretely of, yeah. of kind of feeling that distinction of what God's will is for us yeah. versus getting in the way of our own will. Well, first of all, when you use the term feeling, a yellow flag goes up because feelings are really important. They're just not about spirituality. They're about emotional stability. If I feel suffering, I need to move away from that. If I feel joy, I need to move toward that. But in spiritual, in the world of spirit, feelings could be a real trap, especially for addicts of any kind, because we love to feel and we love to feel all the time and intensely. And if we chase a feeling in the spiritual life, we'll chase the spiritual life away. So the 10th step is what really guides me on a daily basis as to whether I'm in alignment or not. Because if I'm disturbed, I'm not in alignment. I know that from my behavior. I know that from my feelings of being disturbed. If I'm in alignment, I know that because I'm, I have serenity. I have a flow. I use the word flow as my litmus test for my life. And in fact, I use the word flow with a capital F to represent the mystery. Okay, I'm going to stay with that for a while. <laughs> no, 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 you're, 
wonderful question. Stay pressed. My, my images stay gently pressed up against this, and the spirit just leads us forward. I, my question is about prayer. Um, so at the beginning of the year, I took a course with Richard Rohr, and then I started centering prayer. Nice. And it's like the centering word, but I've also been listening to the interior castle with, with Dr. Jim Tenley. And, and I like that approach of uh, Teresa of Avila, just, you know, yeah. talking to God and you said it today, like yeah. pray, a prayer is talking to God, but yeah. in terms of the centering word. So when I, I did Buddhist before and I will come back to the breath. And now I come back to the centering word. Yes. But so is that all? I don't want to say out loud, but is that all included? Every, like everything's okay. included, everything's allowed. I'm a practical man. What works for you? But prayer is very different than meditation, and meditation is very different than centering prayer. Centering prayer is what Jim Finley's probably going to talk about in terms of contemplation. I do a, uh, a gathering of people for centering prayer twice a month on the second and the fourth Wednesday of the month on Zoom. And uh, what, what uh, geography are you in? I'm in San Francisco. Yeah, perfect. You're on the West Coast. So uh, it would be available to you. You will receive a notice because you're on this call uh, of our centering prayer gathering. And... Um, the best book that I've, I've read most of the books on centering prayer. The best book is Father Keating's original book, um, Open Mind, Open Heart. And that will, I believe, really help you as well as come visit us in the um, in the gathering or go to my YouTube. I do. I have a three hour uh, discussion workshop presentation on centering prayer and the contemplative practice on YouTube. So that there are two different practices, centering uh, prayer and meditation. I, I believe I believe they're diametrically different, but they're integrated. That is, my practice is integrated. I, I sit and I pray, then I meditate for five or ten minutes, and then I go into my quiet centering prayer contemplative practice for about 20 minutes. Okay, so maybe that's where I have, uh, I will take out this book because... Yeah. I am not integrating it, or I don't know if you know. And, and don't don't get tied up in 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 trying to figure it all out. Just figure out what your purpose is to improve your relationship with the divine, and then have some fun with it. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, you asked us, you know, why are you here? And I think, what do you yearn for? And I wrote down um, hope and connection and resilience. Mm -hmm. And um, if you might be willing to share a little bit about your process for working through grief when you lost your wife. Yeah. I find that when bad things keep happening, my brain goes to depression and sometimes, well, in times past suicidal ideation, like why is this life even worth living? So yeah. I'm hopeful that meditation will help me connect to my higher power to continue to find purpose in my life. Thank you. 
You're welcome. And are you in a 12-step program? Yes, I am. All right. Um, so do you have a sponsor? I do. Do you talk to your sponsor? I do. I never assume. That's why I ask these very basic <laughs> questions. Yeah. Then I would suggest that you make sure that you have are working or have worked all of the steps because there's no such thing as bad things happening. Life happens and there are unfortunate things, but bad and good is not in my vocabulary. Unfortunate, desired, undesired, unexpected, those are in my vocabulary. It's very relative. When the deer comes to the lake to have a drink of water, that's very good for the deer. When the mountain lion eats the deer, that's very bad for the deer, but very good for the mountain lion. You see, it's all about perception. And so life is manifesting and there are things that happen. We learn to how to navigate them in the program. To answer your question specifically, there is a process of grief. It's very similar to the process of the death and dying, uh, Kubler-Ross's process. Um, and uh, there's also the process, of course, of the steps and the 10th step and the 11th step and sponsorship. I happen to have two daughters, one in AA 30 years, one in Allen on 30 years, and they were my mainstays. They were the people who on a daily basis we talked about the loss and about the process and about the grief. And then I stayed with, consistent with my meditation practice and was very uh, aware of what I was doing with my time in terms of getting the right amount of sleep and exercise as well as helping people, but not, not escaping into activity as another narcotic to anesthetize the grief, but to experience the grief, to embrace the grief. And I figured I'd be done in six months because don't you know, I'm a very spiritual guy. And at the end of six months, I wasn't done. And at the end of another six months, I wasn't done. And at the end of another six months, I wasn't done. But at about two years, I walked into my, my place, which I moved into after Mary's death. And I felt, okay, I am now entering my life, a new phase, and I'm stable. So it was two years, but it was a gradual sort of process, which I had no idea where it began and where I was and, where, and when it would end. But I had a community of support. The, the, I would say if there's any one thing that we need is a community of support. Does that make sense? Yes, thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Great question. Uh, I'm starting to understand the difference now more and better in relation to contemplation and meditation. Yeah. So I started what I thought was meditation a long time ago, probably 1974 or 75 with Transcendental Meditation yes. University, way back when in undergraduate school. And for many years, I've been following Kriya Yoga which was the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda yeah. and Self-Realization Fellowship. And then more recently, Passage Meditation from Berkeley's Eknath Eshwar. Um, and I think actually they've helped me uh, to come to know myself, but I understand from what we're talking about now, now is I want to understand the 12-step method and or the real meditation method. So I'm wondering if there's any room for 
coexistence between the contemplative practice and the meditative practice. And while we were doing our short meditation a little while ago, uh, and I was listening to what I asked for guidance for, uh, the idea occurred to me that maybe this is an example of having to give up old ideas. Oh, like what, uh, for instance? Well, to move away from my contemplative practice, which I really like and I get lots of benefit from, uh, to doing the meditation practice, uh, just asking for guidance and listening to silence. All right. Well, just be clear that they're not mutually exclusive. And I don't mean to give the representation that they're uh, as clearly marked as I indicated earlier, um, like my prayer is five minutes, my meditation is 10 minutes, and my contemplation is 20 minutes. No, it's not that clean, but that's my intent. But it weaves in and weaves out, and I'm in moments of prayer, and I'm in moments of reflective thinking, and then I'm hopefully in moments of presence, and then I find myself completely distracted by some ego need. And then I go to prayer and then I go to meditate. You know, it's kind of like you do the best you can during the time that you're present. Yeah. So. It's an interesting, just an aside, that uh, this Eknath Eshram, who did passage meditation and at Berkeley as a visiting Fulbright scholar, was credited with the first university course in meditation in North America. His, he suggests a method of what he calls meditation of memorizing, he's Hindu, certain spiritual passages. Yeah. And the first spiritual passage that he advocates memorizing and using in meditation was our step 11, the prayer of St. Francis. Oh, oh, yes, right. Yeah, so I found that interesting that a Hindu would, would yeah. take that on. Yeah. Well, because the principles are the principles are the principles. That was one thing that Jim, who's coming in and out right now, but he'll, he'll be back. Um, yeah. Uh, said to me when I said to him at a retreat, that's where I first met him, I've been through the 12 steps and everything you're talking about is familiar to me. I've had the experience, the vocabulary is different. And he just removed his glasses very gently and looked at me very compassionately. And he said, well, Herb, the spiritual path is the spiritual path. <laughs> so it's really all the same, except the vocabulary is different. And that's exactly. why I say you, you can't make a mistake as long as it's helping you and, and you're willing and you have a healthy intention. But as I hopefully demonstrated, you need a teacher at different times, even more than other times. You need a teacher to help navigate both life and the spiritual life and maybe even the emotional life through therapy. Dr. Finley, very timely. Thank you so much. I hope you're having a good morning. I met Dr. Finley probably in the mid 80s, as I mentioned, at a retreat. And then I engaged him to help me sort out my meditation. And he did in the way I told you that it's not a task, it's a process. And I'm as powerless over my meditation as I am over alcohol to sit humbly in the presence of power 
humbled by my own powerlessness and I haven't had a problem since. So thank you, Jim. Sure. Wow. <laughs> great news. Yes, it is. Wow. It's impressive. Uh, <clears throat> okay, good. You can hear me okay? Very nicely. Okay, good. Uh, Una, I'm so pleased we could be together like this today. And um, what I want to share is a reflection here on 11th step on increasing conscious contact with God as a prayer and meditation as we understand him and committing ourselves to do God's will this way. And what I specifically want to focus on here is um, the ways in which prayer and meditation, the contact with God becomes contemplative. And I'd like to share uh, some insights into what that means. And I would like to uh, approach it, uh, and I'll speak here for maybe about 45 minutes to an hour. Then we'll take a mini break, stand and stretch. And then we'll have up to half an hour for dialogue for questions. So first of all, I want to approach this in three levels. I first like to talk about contemplation at the psychological level. So the contemplative experience is an experience that we've all had. And uh, it's part of being a human being, really. And what its implications are in our lives and, and the human experience. Next, I want to talk about it at the religious level. By religious, I mean not in any specific doctrinal teaching of any tradition, but we're, we're, uh, the contemplative experience of being in relationship with a mystery greater than ourselves. And that mystery is greater than ourselves, is in a relationship with us. And the meaning of our life is found in our fidelity to that relationship as it guides us. And, um, and then thirdly, um, how that religious consciousness becomes contemplative and, and starts touching on modes where it becomes mystical, uh, sense of mystical experience. And so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll walk through this in those three phases. So first of all, uh, starting from scratch, um, uh, contemplative experience. You know, if you look up in the dictionary to contemplate, contemplation, to contemplate is to um, pay close attention uh, and to observe carefully is to contemplate. So I want, I want to stop there, start there. You know, I think most of the things we experience through the day, we kind of experience in passing on our way to something else. You know, we're on our way and in passing, we notice this, we notice that, we notice many things. But once in a while, something catches our eye and uh, we pause, we pause. And in the pause, uh, we might say, um, the pause and contemplation is a, is a stance of sustained attentiveness. It's a kind of a, a, an attentiveness that's sustained, like it is held for some moments like this. And I would, I, I would also say, if you look at it very closely, that if, if it, it continues to be sustained, what you discover is that you're becoming more deeply present to and one with the presence of that which has given you reason to pause. So the contemplative experience then is an enrichment of presence. And it's also enrichment of a communal presence. 
you're kind of in communion with, or in some sense deeply unexplainably one with, the presence of that in whose presence you've paused like this. And I'd like to give some uh, examples of this where it occurs in the basic realms of human experience as a spontaneous event, as a spontaneous event. One, it, it occurs in the midst of nature. Uh, and um, to use imagery here, Sue from Thomas Merton in the last chapter of New Seeds of Contemplation, you're out walking along and you turn to see a flock of birds descending. And as if out of the corner of your eye, you sense in their descent something that's vast or primordial or true. And you're in a state of oneness with it. Or sometimes, too, there are moments between two people who are in the presence of the beloved. In the presence of the beloved, there's a deepening presence to and one with the presence of the beloved. And you sense that your oneness with each other in love has about it a quality that's vast, a primordial and true. It also can wash over us and touch us in being with children. You look down into the upturned face of a small child or you're reading a child a good night, uh, good night story. And you sense somehow in the presence of this child, there is a presence of that which is sacred or holy. Something that matters very, very much. Like an innate value you can't explain. And the presence of the child reveals you to yourself that you're capable of seeing that. And what you see in the child, you also know is true of you. Although maybe you've lost touch with it in the busyness of the day. Like in being in the presence of the children, they, they bring us home to ourselves. It, it also comes over us uh, in a quiet hour at day's end. Or it can come over us uh, in a pause between two lines of a poem. Um, it can come over us uh, in the midst of art. You go to an art museum and you look at the people there. Some people have come there alone. Some people, they come with others, but if they do, they talk in hushed tones so as not to disturb the others. And they pause and they contemplate each work of art. They pause like the, the presence of the beautiful, that the artist saw something in the flower by contemplating the flower. And then the artist shares with us what the artist saw. And when we pause before the painting of the flower, the artist helps us to see the beauty of the flower, the beauty of a woman standing in a, pouring milk out of a pitcher, whatever it is, like this, like the aesthetics of things. It can also come to us sometimes um, in moments of suffering. It can also come to us in the, in the midst of, a, of an ongoing struggle and we're unexpectedly quickened from within, like um, we're not alone in the midst of our difficulties like this. It's a fragile, precarious thing. 
I also think, it, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talked about the stages of dying. And so the first person finds out about they're going to die, first they're in a state of denial. You can't actually believe that mortality applies to you. And uh, then there, there's the, uh, in denial. Then there's like bargaining. You make a deal with God, honest, honest God, really. If you let me live, uh, I'll do this and this and this. Whatever it is you've been putting off for all your life. Let's. I, I hope we can work something out here. And then when that doesn't work, you know, there's depression. You go into a state of depression. And really, this is the ego self coming to at the end of itself. And it's grieving the loss of itself, see, which is mortality. And everything that's born dies. Life is a temporary arrangement. We're here for a very short time, really. And I think essentially to learn how to love. See. And we come forth from love. We're sustained by love. And uh, we return to love. When we're born, in concept born, God exhales us. His infinite love exhales us onto time on this earth. See, and in God's good time, God inhales and takes us home like this. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, some people come to a state of acceptance. She said, not everybody comes to acceptance. Acceptance is freedom from the tyranny of death in the midst of death. And you get some strange feeling when you're in the presence of the dying loved one. You look into their eyes and it's somehow the gate of heaven somehow the gate of heaven. And to be in the presence of this person is a gift that pertains to you. And in that moment of being with the dying beloved in the state of acceptance, acceptance stirs in you. And there's contemplative communion. If God is Lord of life, God is Lord of death. God's the infinity of life and God's the infinity of death. Gabriel Marcel says, we know we learn to love someone when we see in them that which is too beautiful to die. And it's the eyes of love that sees it. And uh, we learn to love ourselves when we know that which is too beautiful to die. And that's the contemplative experience, really. So it comes as it comes. It comes as it comes. These, these quickenings, these flashpoints, sometimes they're very intense. Abraham Maslow called them peak experiences. You only need one of those to do a number on you, really. Sometimes when quite young, we're granted something we spend the rest of our life learning to be faithful to. But usually they're subtle, subtle, subtle. Like if you weren't careful, you would have missed it. But in your heart, you know that you didn't miss it. And the thing about these moments, these awakening moments, the world would be a dimmer place if it was not for the light that shines out from these moments, is that they're fleeting. See, they're very fleeting, like they're right there, like this. And you're in the awe of it, self-authenticating. When it's actually happening, it's too self-evident to doubt. It's too deep to understand. See? It's like oneness in all directions. And uh, then your cell phone goes off. You know, you're already 10 minutes late for the meeting. And uh, off you go. <laughs> Until the next time comes. And the next time comes. And then there begins to grow in you a desire to abide in the depths so fleetingly glimpsed. That's the path. 
See, why do I spend so many of my waking hours trapped on the outer circumference of the inner richness of the life that I'm living? I know it's real because it granted itself to me in the arms of the beloved before the setting sun, lying in the dark, listening to the rain, giving myself over to the smell of the blood red rose. It gave itself to me. And I know it wasn't something more that was given, but like a curtain opened. And uh, I was allowed to fleetingly glimpse what every moment is, every breath, every heartbeat is that. Merton says it beats in our very blood whether we want it to or not. And then a person says, I will not break faith with my awakened heart. See, in my most childlike hour, I was graced with this. I'm powerless to make it happen. I cannot make oneness happen. Uh, mo uh, lovers cannot make their moments of oceanic oneness happen. Poets cannot make the poem happen. Those committed to healing cannot make healing happen. Those committed to sobriety cannot make sobriety happen. See? See, we're given a touch of something, which having tasted it, our life without it will be forever incomplete. And we're powerless to make it happen by ourselves. Like that. But here's what I can do. I can freely choose to assume the stance that offers the least resistance to be taken by that which I cannot make happen. We cannot attain it, but it attains us in our deep acceptance of our inability to attain it. It overtakes us. Hence the gift of tears, hence the gratitude See, like this. This is why the alcoholic says to their higher power, I don't know who you are, but I do know who you are. You're the one who saved my life. See? I know it, I know it, I know that I know it. See? And so the issue is, how can I, how can I then not just be occasionally touched by your oneness with me, which is life itself? But how can I abide in it? And this is where then contemplative consciousness becomes religious. And religious in the sense in which, I want to speak religious language now, like this, is that um, by faith we know that God's here now, like all about us and within us. St. Augustine says, closer to us than we are to ourselves. And um, I'm, in, I'm in this relationship with this infinite presence, this infinite presence in a relationship with me. And here's the key about the higher power. It isn't just that the higher power is in a relationship with me, but the higher power in relationship with me is infinite. And here I'll say it as poetry. This, uh, different world religions have their name for this infinity. God, Yahweh, Allah, the Tao, Buddha nature, see, the Divine Mother. So in each religion, you have to try to find words for it. So I'm going to I'm going to here call it God. It's beyond name. It has no name. It's beyond name. That this infinite presence of God is presencing itself. That is, she's pouring herself out and completely giving herself away, whole and complete, in and as the intimate immediacy of the gift and the miracle of my very presence. 
in my nothingness without God. It's not just that I'm in the presence of God, but in some strange way, the infinite presence of God is presencing itself and pouring itself out as the intimate immediacy of my very presence. I think when we love somebody very deeply, we, we get a glimpse of this in the beloved's eyes, or in the child's eyes. Like that the somehow the being in the presence of the beloved is to be in the presence of God, presencing itself as the presence of the beloved. This is true of all things, of stones and trees and flowers, everything. Meister Eckhart says, if we think of God as generosity, that we are the generosity of God. God is being poured out like this ever and ever and ever, the darkness of the night. The, the world is God's body, that it bodies forth the love that's uttering it into being. And it's, it, this, this, this generosity of God is perpetual and absolute. So if at the count of three, God would cease loving us into the present moment, at the count of three, we would all disappear. For we're nothing, absolutely nothing, outside the infinite presence of God, presencing himself, presencing yourself. It isn't as if I can say, I sure hope God is with me as I share these reflections, because it'll go better if God's with me. See, I'll muddle through if God's not with me. I'll get by. See, but if God's not loving me into the present moment at the count of three, I'd vanish. And, God, and you'd, if God would cease loving the universe into existence at the count of three, the universe would vanish. We're not used to thinking this way. This is religious consciousness. See? My, Thomas Merton says, last chapter of New Seeds of Contemplation, the world and time are the dance of the Lord in emptiness. The music of the spheres is the music of a wedding feast. And then he says, we do not have to go very far to catch echoes of that game and of that dancing. When we are alone on a starlit night, when we know love in our own hearts, when we see children in a moment, they are really children. Or like the Japanese poet Basho, we hear an old frog land in a quiet pond with a solitary splash. At such times, he says, the simplicity and the purity see, makes itself evident. And held in that moment, when you're in that moment, like what a fool I am to worry so the way I sometimes do. See, see like this. You you're infinitely in love with me with all world loving me through and through and through and through and through and through. This is the truth, that love is my origin, love is my ground, and love is my destiny. Now, this is true of stones and trees and stars and the ocean and all of it, but it's true of us and that we're empowered by God to realize it. This is true, God. God is, the inf God is the divinity of stones and trees and the sound of running water. Uh, Carl Jung once said, how can we claim the years have taught us anything if we've not learned to sit and listen to the secret that whispers in the brooks? But what's, what separates us from this infinite holiness of everything, a grain of sand, a drop of water, is that we're empowered to realize it, which is religious experience. They were quickened in realizing the divinity of ourselves, which evokes a feeling of awe. It's a state of awe that the immediacy of life itself is unexplainably holy. It's a pure gift, heartbeat by heartbeat, breath by breath, like this. Then, in being awakened to it, we're empowered then to freely say yes to it. 
because love is never imposed, it's always offered. And so we freely surrender to give ourselves to the love that's giving itself to us. For in the reciprocity of love, destiny is fulfilled. And in fidelity to that reciprocity is happiness and fullness through all our days, on up to and including the moment of our death and beyond, because it's eternal. It's eternal. Here's the problem, and here's where addiction comes in. Although our capacity to be aware of this through prayer, poetry, solitude, helping others, intimacy, caring, although the capacity is there, the capacity to abide in that awareness is wounded. Our, our capacity to abide in the divinity of each breath and heartbeat is traumatized. Here's another way of putting it. Here's another way of putting it. You somehow get the feeling that you're, you're being carried along by the demands of the day and you're skimming over the depths of your own life. And you're suffering from depth deprivation. That's the feeling you get. And what's really tragic is that God's oneness with us is hidden in the depths over which we're skimming. I mean, carried down the road by the urgency of things like this. And I'm, I'm estranged and exiled by it. And because I'm exiled by the oneness that is the mystery of each moment, in that exiled state, I act out that traumatization on, on people. We do traumatizing things to each other. Hence, marital discord. Hence, domestic violence. Hence, racism. Hence, prejudice. Hence, and what we do to others, we do to ourselves. And we're caught in this dilemma like this. So here's what I say about alcoholics. I'm not a friend of Bill Wilson's myself. I'm not burdened, nor, but my wife was, who just died last year. And it was changed her whole life, really, her life of recovery. And I used to go with her to open meetings. And a lot of people I saw in therapy were in recovery. A lot of people would come to my sitting group. Or, uh, you know, there's just nothing like a well-seasoned alcoholic. You know what I mean? <laughs> the salt of the earth, seriously. They've been down the road a ways and, and uh, there's something real about it, like palpably real like this. How I put it is that an alcoholic is a would-be mystic who wandered off into a bad neighborhood and got mugged. See? Because the alcoholic made an amazing discovery. This is a deep insight. My problems are not my problem. My problem is my experience of my problems. Therefore, if I could alter my experience of my problems, I wouldn't have the problem. And when you take a drink, like one alcoholic I was seeing once in therapy, she said, she said when she took her first drink, she knew she had just found her favorite thing. <laughs> she said, she said, I wish you would have known me when I was drinking. It was a lot more interesting. I was crazy, but I was interesting. And you got carried off because here's the problem. There's something mystical about the insight. It's the quality of consciousness. But the trouble is uh, the, the, the mood altering substance blunts consciousness. So you're not more conscious, you're less conscious. Now you got two problems. Because the thing that you're using to protect you from the sadness and fear and the loss that you couldn't bear. The very thing that you're using to get you through another day is the very thing that's destroying you. That's the dilemma.
and it's hard to admit that we have come to admit we have come to admit we're powerless and why is it so hard to admit it's hard to admit because see what is to admit to admit is to acknowledge about yourself that something is true that you would do anything if it wasn't true and i have to admit that the very thing that gets me through my day is destroying me here's the next layer i must also admit i can't stop that the alcoholic in me doesn't care about me and it won't be done with me until i'm dead Therefore, if this is up to me, I'm finished. I'm finished, and I am finished. But is it possible that there is a power greater than myself who can achieve in me what I, by my own power, am powerless to achieve? Oh, here starts a relationship that's very delicate, it's very precarious, and is extremely vulnerable like this. And in order then for this to be true, though, you have to hand yourself over to the care of that higher power. You have to put yourself in its hands to, to guide you, which is the recovery community, which are the 12 steps. And you have to cling to it for dear life. For dear life. And every time you slip, and you may slip many times, you just get up again because although you may slip away from the higher power, the higher power never slips away from you. And uh, when St. Benedict wrote his rule for monks in the fifth century, uh, someone asked him one day, what do you monks do in that monastery all day? He said, fall down and get up, fall down and get up, fall down and get up, fall down and get up. And it's the willingness to start over, over and over again and not give up on ourselves and learn we're being unexplainably sustained. God is a presence that protects us from nothing, even as God unexplainably sustains us in all things, uh, even right up to this very moment. Look at your own life up till now. Look, look over your shoulder at your own path, all the, the wreckage of the past. See? Really. How has it come to be? You've come to be the man or woman that you've come to be who's even capable of hearing such things. You couldn't have planned it if you tried. And God who's begun this work in you will bring it to completion. And so a battle ensues. Because the alcoholic doesn't politely walk away. So you can hold hands with your higher power and go down the road. It keeps reinstating its claim on your life. So you have to hold on for dear life, dear life, dear life, dear life, dear life. And there's a tipping point. At which there's a, there's a grace liberation from it through your higher power. But then the second round begins, which is deeper, which means you now have to face the very things why you were drinking so you wouldn't have to face them. And so that the fearless inventory, the making of amends, and so on. See, what, what is a fearless inventory? First of all, what's a fearful inventory? A fearful inventory is that um, you've already discovered enough broken, tragic things about yourself. You're scared to death about what else is back there. See, a careful inventory is who, what's going to come out next, you're going to have to admit. You've admitted so much already. See, you know, crazy as a loony bird, and all of a sudden, out goes one more thing. But it's only fearful if you believe it has authority over you. See? A fearless inventory is no matter how broken the brokenness is, no matter what it is, no matter what you've done, 
what its effects were, no matter what it is. It has no authority over who you are because only love has authority to name who you are because infinite love is infinitely in love with you. It's precious in your fragility. And by the deep acceptance of that is your way home, is your way home like this. So it's in this sense then is the 11th step. So what is prayer and meditation sensitive to these contemplative reverberations? Like what's it when I actually, for my daily rendezvous with my higher power, what do I do when I sit there? Like what happens when I sit there? Thomas Merton once said, uh, with God, a little sincerity goes a long, long way. And uh, it's like, here I am, Lord. Here I am. It's just me. It's just me. And then God silently says, well, it's just me. You know, you know. And uh, let's see what happens like this. So I think there's two phases to this. And I'm going to use the classical mystical traditions here. But this is true of all world religions, really. The first phase with your higher power, prayer, meditation, conscious contact, is Lexio Divina, meditation and prayer. Lexio Divina is a word. It can be, and usually it's in your own religious tradition. So in Christian tradition, it might be the Gospels. If you're in the Jewish tradition, it might be the Psalms, the Torah, the Prophets. Um, it might not be, uh, it, you can also have it as some tradition other than your own. It could be a, a Buddhist teaching, a Hindu teaching, whatever. It might not be religious, it might be poetry, it might be a poem. But here's the, it might be the big book, is your Lexio. But here's the key to Lexio Divina. You sit in a stance of faith that the words that you're reading, the words of encouragement that you're reading, is God personally saying those words to you in your heart? Right there. See, See that's the lexio. So I want to say, use an example from the Gospels. Jesus says, fear not. Jesus says, I am with you always. See, like, do, do not be afraid. And it's the lexio is we hear God personally saying that to us, telling us not to be afraid while we sit there meditation like don't be afraid and the first thing we notice about the words is that they're beautiful even before you thought about it it's beautiful and your heart knows it's beautiful because it's true like that, like that. and that's the lexio so lexio like a ladder to heaven the first rung of the ladder to heaven is a sustained receptivity to the influx and the cadences of this beauty that your heart knows is true, like it resonates deep inside of yourself. See, I can't explain it. Thomas Merton said one of the great things about the interior life is freedom from the need to understand. I don't understand it. I can't wrap my mind around it, but my heart knows that it's true. You're here with me. You're here with me. You're one with me. You're giving yourself to me. I'm precious in your eyes like this. Next, meditation, discursive meditation. If you then engage in a dialogue with your higher power about what your higher power... So God says to you, I talk to you. It's your turn. What do you think? I'd love to hear from you. You know why I want to hear from you? I'm into you. I'm, really, I'm quite taken by you, actually. <laughs> 
You know why? You know why? Because we're an item. <laughs> I'm quite smitten by you. Really, you know, you're really my you. You're my beloved. Really, so you are my beloved. See, before before all of creation and the poetry of creation, before all of creation, I eternally contemplated you in myself. And this, and this you that I always, always knew is the you that never began because I never, 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 never have not known who you are in me, ever. And the you that was never born is the you that will never die. It's the, the eternality of yourself in relationship with me, giving myself to you like this. And so I've spoken to you, say, fear not, ask you not to be afraid. Where you at? And, uh, and you know, uh, the thing about prayer and sobriety is when everything else fails, try reality. You know? And so this won't work to pose and posture and say fancy things. By the way, the infinite higher power infinitely knows more than you do everything you're about to say, but your higher power just loves to hear you say it. <laughs> See? Because when you say it, it's you showing up. You say, and so you might go something like this, it's personal. You know, yes, fear not. But as you well know, I am afraid. Sometimes. I'm afraid a lot, actually. And because uh, this happened, it didn't go well, it might happen again. And it's happening. Now I, I am afraid. Actually. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I'm going to say it in Christian terms. Jesus on, on the cross. And then you say to God, but you know what? You were afraid. In the garden of Gethsemane, you sweat blood, post-traumatic trauma. You were traumatized. And hanging on the cross, he lost his faith. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You were afraid. Who's your, who are you to talk? Or is it, I'm not to be afraid of being afraid? See? Because somehow you're with me in my fear. And you grant to me a peace that isn't dependent on how this turns out because it's your peace upon which everything depends. Help me with this. And when you say help me, that's the prayer, which is from your heart, okay? from the heart center. See? Help me. I can't do this without you. I can't. I can't even take my next breath without you. So teach me to be free from the tyranny of fear over me so that the depth of your oneness with me and love is stronger than the fearful thing. So I can face it with courage and walk with James Baldwin, the, the famous author, Afro-American author. He, he says, not everything can be solved, but nothing can be solved unless it's faced. And uh, so sobriety is kind of facing the truth. And the truth is the depths of your fragility. You know it so well uh, out of the wreckage of the past. You know how weak you are. But the weakness deeply accepted is a love that's stronger than your weakness, that sustains you in your weakness. And right there with your higher power, it's like right there, like that. And then when the rendezvous with God comes to an end, you ask your higher power not to break the thread of this sensitivity as you go through your day. Okay? I'm gonna go through my day, and I know you're gonna be with me breath by breath, sustaining me, living my life, but help me to not lose touch with this. So as I'm driving to work, 
or I'm, I walk down a hallway, I'm sitting at a making a phone call. Somehow, somewhere nearby, I have this sense of you sustaining me in the details and challenges of the moment. But I'll slip and slide a lot. I'm just a human being. And I know you sustain me in my weakness. And so tomorrow morning, we're going to meet here again. I light my candle, I bow, I open the big book with the song. Where were we, Lord? Oh, yes. Not to be afraid. Let me see how yesterday went. A lot of slippage, really. Yesterday was really not, not one of my better days. But in your eyes, every day I live is holy in your eyes because I'm holy in your eyes and my weakness. And I'm going to start all over again with you. And so constancy in that uh, uh, is a kind of a spiritual sobriety. See, it's being spiritually sober. Next, where it starts to become contemplative now. See, so there's first phase is this, this, is this lexio, meditation and prayer, is kind of gray states of consciousness habituated through the day. So what is con contemplative encounter with God? Here's the example I use for married love. Imagine a married couple talking, and this happens to be a happy marriage. Okay. This happens to be two people who are glad they're married. That's not always true, but these two people, it's a happy marriage. And they're doing something that every married couple has done many times. They're sitting down with their day timers and they're going through the schedule for the next week. I get the brakes checked on the car, the dental appointment, call and we're gonna go have dinner with someone, that, all that. And it kind of winds down. She says to her husband, you know, I, I had a thought yesterday about us. And I don't know if this is a good time to share it or not. He said, no, no, it's good. Like, what is it? Now notice when she says, I have a thought about us. It's not the new item on the to-do list. It isn't like get the car fixed, go to the dentist, and then there's us. See? She's raising a qualitatively different dimension of reality. There requires a qualitative shift in consciousness commensurate with that. And in order to follow her, he's got to join her there. He's got to leave task consciousness behind to enter into relatedness consciousness. So she's not alone there in what she's sharing. See, they're like together. In it. And she says to him, you know, I guess what I'm aware of is before we met and all this, I, I honestly, I didn't even know a love like this existed, really. And uh, he said, me either. Like I didn't either. And she said, the thing is, it's gotten so deep, really. He said, it has. Actually, he said, it has gotten very deep. And then she says, I suppose if we keep going like this, it's going to get deeper. He says, inside he's going, oh, here she goes again. <laughs> I saw a cartoon once. Uh, she was a middle-aged couple sitting at dinner. And uh, uh, the woman saying to her husband, she said, oh, George, after dinner, let's go sit on the sofa and experience the living room. And this is being married to Irma is like one long, endless retreat. See, you can tell he, he doesn't want to experience the living room. But this is this is guy who's he's into this, too. He's with it like this. He says, yes, you know, what? it's deep. It is deep. And then she pauses and she says this. I, I, 
How is it going to get deeper? She says, I wonder if we'll ever get to a depth of love so deep, there'll be no deeper depth of love beyond the depth of love we've gotten to. See what she's asking? She wants to know if there's an end to love, whether, you can, whether it can be exhausted or used up. And in asking the question, her heart already knows the answer. They'll never get to the end of it because it has no end. They're making a kind of a descent see, into this depth of love, which is a bottomless abyss of love. And that bottomless abyss of love is welling up and giving itself to them in and as the moment of their oneness with each other. And in that moment, they mutually sense this. They're momentary mystics. That's the contemplative dimension. And what do they do next? They might become silent, because if you speak too soon, you can disrupt it. Or they might say words where the cadence of the words perpetuates the oneness that words can't explain. Or they might make love, or they might take a walk, or they might have lunch. And that's sobriety. See, that's emotional, spiritual, mystical sobriety. I worked a lot with trauma. My wife and I were therapists. We were, we were mainly with adult survivors of childhood trauma and abandonment who wanted spirituality to be a resource in their therapy. And, um, and they found that in the work, they had to kind of walk at the feeling love, this, this healing process. It's, uh, see, it's being, in the, it's being in the presence of someone uh, when you share the thing that hurts the most, you risk it. You're in the presence of someone who will not invade you or abandon you. And you can be reparented in love. Because when you're with somebody who will not invade you with answers or solutions or what's wrong with you or that, see, and they don't walk away. You can learn not to invade or abandon yourself. And that's really true. That's really true. But something else is also true in therapy. There can be a moment where you risk sharing what hurts the most. You kind of stop. And you don't know what you're going to say next. And the words come from someplace deep inside. And you say something vulnerable that your heart knows is true. And in this sense, psychotherapy is meditation for two. See? And you're on holy ground together like this and uh, you walk the walk you walk the walk and what you discover in the broken place is what Jesus called the pearl of great price Thomas Merton says it is that in us that uh, that no, no matter how badly you trash yourself no matter how you've beaten yourself up because you're treating yourself the way people treated you and you're ritualistically reenacting the abandonment, no matter how, no matter what that is, and no matter how damaged you may be because of it, psychologically, emotionally, whatever, there is that in you that remains untrashed, unthreatened, and undiminished because it belongs completely to God. You can't do anything to it, and no one can do anything to it either. No one can do anything to that. And in the very midst of your tears, in the very midst of the vulnerability, something breaks open and you come upon within yourself the pearl of a great price. The preciousness of God being poured out is the preciousness of your life. Like this. 
and then uh, there's there's the path of that. And so what happens then sometimes uh, in meditation and prayer, then you're sitting in prayer, you're having your rendezvous with your higher power, and there is this lexio, you're sitting with the word you're taking in, you're meditating on it, you might journal, reflect on it. You ask for help, help me with this. And at a certain moment, maybe mid-sentence, you're so touched by the unbearable simplicity of it all. Like mid-sentence, you're moved not to say anything. You're moved not to ask anything. So you can't explain it. If you turn to look at it directly, it goes away because it's not the object of our finite eyes. And you're just unexplainably one with an all-pervasive loving presence pouring itself out, giving itself away as the miracle of this moment of you sitting empty-handed like an unlearned child with no answers. They talk about the gift of tears. Sometimes the tears are lived, sometimes the person actually cries. But it's an interior weeping of being un, being loved unexplainably like this. Why? Uh, nothing's missing anywhere like this. And then you say, I, I can't, and then it passes. You turn back the scriptures are there, the big book, whatever it is. But then you say, I can assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to being overtaken by that. So when I open the Gospels or I open the big book or I read the Torah or whatever it is that I'm reading, my heart's ready. Like I'm ready, I'm reading along, receptively open, and I'm kind of, it's like lovers knowing when the next little invitational moment comes to get a little closer. You can feel in your heart the tendency to pause. You can feel the kind of the readiness of the that the approaching nearness of what can't be explained is beginning to have its way with you like this. And you learn the art form of the surrender to it forever like this. And um, and I think that's the contemplative dimensions of conscious contact with God. And as you carry it throughout the day, you then discover that your recovery path is turning you into a contemplative person. It's, become, it's becoming more and more habitual. It has more to do with the way you listen to people, uh, the way you sit with people. It isn't just you've seen bumper stickers, what would Jesus do? But you ask yourself, and this it isn't what would Jesus do in this situation, but what would Jesus' attitude be towards this situation? What would Jesus' attitude be towards this person? What, how would Jesus understand this situation? Understand this person? And how can I, through the grace of God, let that become my understanding, to be my presence? And uh, <clears throat> I like Richard Rohr says, uh, uh, he said the word nice isn't even in the Bible. God never said blessed are, Jesus never said blessed are the nice. Jesus often wasn't, some people are so nice you don't know who they are. Just pervasive niceness, you know. Um, so, but sometimes love is a step forward and tell the truth. Yeah. But you say it in an honest way, as love in your intent. And you learn to tell the truth with yourself. The truth will set you free. And so these are the contemplative dimensions. And this might draw you, as some people might not, it might draw you in your religious tradition in Judaism to Kabbalah, the Kabbalistic way. It might draw you in your tradition to the Christian mystics, Thomas Merton, St. John of the Cross, Meister Eckhart, might not. 
It might draw you to sort Sufism, the Muslim tradition, the poets of the poet of Rumi. It might draw you to a certain poet, T.S. Eliot or Mary Oliver, whatever it is. And you, you, you find yourself that your own path of recovery has led you into a spiritual path that keeps weaving itself back through your recovery, how it incarnates in your, the way you get up in the morning, the way you go to bed at night, like that. No. Uh, so I'm done. Those are my thoughts. <laughs> so let's, let's stand and stretch if you care to. It's optional. And uh, we can take a stretch for a couple minutes. And, uh, and then we'll have a little chat. How would that be? How's that, Herb? Okay. That's wonderful, Jim. And by the way, you're never done. You ring a bell that keeps resonating. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell people sometimes, listen very closely to my talks. If you look real close, you'll notice they have no content. <laughs> No, but, but it opens my heart and it brings tears exactly. to my eyes. <laughs> exactly. Your heart's opened up to something, the unexplainable, that's, that's coming right at you. It's already, it's, it already, it's already uh, you already belong to it. Yeah. And in the, in the cadences of the language, your heart knows it's true. And that's the teaching, really, I, I think. Wonderful, Jim. Thank you so much for joining us sure. and for sharing your journey with us, because that's what that was, a meditation in itself, quite frankly. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like the first time I heard your presentation, particularly when you said about power, what is power? Yeah. And I think that like I've done, you know, um, what I'm in a 12 step program, I've done the steps. And I think I've just been waiting for intercession. You know what? And I think that's what I thought the power was that like things would just start falling into place for me instead of just really allowing a space for that relationship to continue and to keep opening up my heart. Um, and I thought that like surrendering to the um, behaviors and understanding the behaviors and analyzing the behaviors that I would get an epiphany and that somehow that they would stop. Yes. 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 We, 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 we ran out of fairy dust. <laughs> so it requires, uh, and in, uh, Jim said it, he says, when we, when we're able to name it, then we can deal with it, but we then deal with it. So it's getting the name accurate and then taking the action that might be effective, learning what is effective and what isn't, and adjusting accordingly. That's why sponsorship is so important. Um, Jim, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, you're talking about that love and God loves us. Um, what do you think of consecration? Like I've done a consecration to, to Mother Mary and stuff like that, a 33-day consecration. What do you think about those kinds of... Um, rituals I, I think i think they can be very good there's something about the power of ritual that symbolically energizes the path that we're on there's a, in a consecration we're echoing that god's consecrated to us and we're honoring that we're consecrated we're consecrated persons we're all consecrated so when we make a consecrated act, we're actualizing our, our consecrated status in God's eyes 
by recommitting ourselves to the path. This is why, like liturgy, uh, why repetition is not redundant. Because every time you enter into the ritual of the liturgy, um, you enter, you kind of renew in your heart. This is like uh, sobriety. You know, it's like a daily meditation. It's like a deepening renewal of a deepening process of a surrender and a union like that. Yeah, it can be very good. It, the only thing you watch out for is sometimes it can get caught into magical thinking. Yeah. And it can also get follow up with, we don't follow through by putting it into action. Yeah. You know, we, we, we reconsecrate ourselves, then go out and rob the bank. <laughs> I, I, well, I saw a guy in therapy once. He, he, he was coming, he wanted to learn to meditate. And, um, oh, he was, he was uh, anxious. He was anxious because he was a cocaine addict and a dealer. And he wanted to learn to meditate so that if he could learn to meditate, he wouldn't be so anxious. And I said, have you ever considered the cocaine addictions contributing to your anxiety? He said he wasn't willing to consider that. <laughs> he wanted to be a peaceful cocaine addict who meditated. <laughs> right. we're, always, we're always trying to strike a deal. So as long as the ritual is the willingness to put into action, you know, here I am, Lord, take me, break me, make me your own. Show me what is your will and my willingness to act on it with your grace. They can be very helpful. And that, that's an amazing answer. And then finally, my other question is, uh, you talked about trauma and abandonment. Yes. Um, I feel like, you know, I was, uh, there was a bit of abandonment, emotional abandonment for me when I was a kid. And I feel like that's also turned over to God. Like, I feel like I remember thinking that God had abandoned me as well when I was a kid as well. So how do I heal that? Well, let me say briefly now in the context of this, very briefly, um, two things I want to access to my teachings, if you want. With Richard Rohr on my website, jamesfinley.org, um, there's a weekly website called Turning to the Mystics. It's a 30-minute meditation on a mystic for a week. So we did Thomas Merton, we did Teresa of Avila, we did John of the Cross, we're going to do Meister, Cloud of Unknowing next, Meister Eckhart. And on that website, there are five hours of teaching on the contemplative dimensions of healing trauma. And if you're interested, you can see my, my approach. What does it mean to be a contemplative clinician on the contemplative dimensions of healing trauma? How do you heal it psychologically? And then what's the depth dimension of that healing? And you can look, it's a subject in itself. Mm -hmm. okay. yeah. so, very and very often where there's addiction, there's a dual diagnosis. The addiction is directly related to trying to self-medicate the, the trauma. You know, and you end up with two, there's, there's, they often show up together, actually. Jim, are you doing a book or uh, on uh, trauma and recovery? Um... I, I am. I'm, 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 I'm working on a spiritual memoir of my own trauma. Mm -hmm. I was really traumatized as a child in the monastery, too. And um, my spiritual path, like a teaching memoir. Well, and then those audio files that I just mentioned mm -hmm. on the website, of publishing those yeah. and there's extended readings in depth psychology and the mystical traditions yeah. and also there's two people a physician and a psychologist who are putting together how to do study groups hmm. on um, the contemplative dimensions of the healing of trauma 
within yourself and families and addiction. Yeah. And, and yeah. so you can see that on my website. So I'm very committed to do that. And it's a big part of my life, really. Right. Um, this Where does trauma and transcendence touch each other? Mm-hmm. What are the places? And addiction is one of those places. Yeah. yeah. So stay tuned. <laughs> stay tuned. Thank you. I just want to share with you both that my heart is just filled and my soul is filled listening to both of you. And um, like, I just feel God and there's nothing like that feeling. And um, I had a, a spiritual experience 33 years ago, three weeks after getting abstinent and Overeaters Anonymous, when I was driving on the 101 in LA in the midst of traffic, and all of a sudden I felt peace and I felt a oneness with everybody in the cars. Yeah. And I've never known that feeling. Yeah. And, and I think that was a spiritual experience. Yeah, um, and I get those feelings and I can't bring them on. So to hear you both talk, it's so validating and to be reminded of God like this is so validating. When I was in the monastery, I lived there for about six years. I studied medieval philosophy, Thomas Aquinas and Duns Scotus and uh, Augustine and so on. And, um, and this idea of the person, um, our, our ultimate identity is that we subsist in God, like light subsist in flame. See, that's the intuition identity. We're trying to find our way home to this identity. And when I wrote Merton's Palace of Nowhere and I started to go on tour leading silent retreats like this with sittings and meals are in silence. I wrote a letter to Dan Walsh, who was the professor who taught me there. And uh, I said, how can I communicate this to people out here living in the world? This the subsisting flame is like this oneness. How can I communicate it? And he wrote back and he said, you cannot communicate it but it will communicate itself through you if you're convinced in what you say and if you are what you say. Yeah. And you know it'll be communicating itself because there'll be a response in the listener, something deep inside of them will know it's being addressed. And I've always been so blessed in teaching like this. And I would be blessed twice over when someone would raise their hand. And just like the question that was just asked, and I could tell the words were coming directly from their awakening heart. Merton, Thomas Merton called this spiritual communication. And I would suggest at 12-step meetings when they're really yes. in the work, they are this. Yes. You can feel it in the room. Yeah. It's like an event in, in the room. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's a gift. Yeah. Thanks, Jim, so much. Hi, this is for Dr. Finley. I just wanted to thank you for the tenderness of your language yeah. really touched me deeply. And I, I've never heard that before. Like when you said, there is that in you that remains untrashed, undiminished. I wasn't able to write it all down, but have a deep fear that I, I am trash. So yeah. Yeah. I appreciate and thank you for reminding me that I have value. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. I'm going to share an insight about this. Uh, you know, in the Gospels, there's healing stories. It's a lot of healing stories. And everyone says, but there's a, something about them. They're all the same in a way. Jesus spent all night in prayer in this oneness with God. 
and came out roaming the earth looking for suffering, to set people free from suffering. And when people approached them, I have leprosy, my daughter died, I'm a prostitute, whatever. Jesus knew that the root of their suffering wasn't what they were suffering with. They thought they were what was wrong with them. They thought it's the idolatry of circumstance over grace. And he would respond to their suffering. It's like psychotherapy, like AA. He would respond to the suffering. How can I be helpful and extraordinary? But here's the real miracle, really. Reflected in his eyes, they saw their true face before they were born. They saw the invincible preciousness of himself that belongs completely to God that no one can diminish. That's experiential salvation. Because that's the trouble. We, we, we collapse under the rubble of shame-based internalizations. And um, that's the traumatized sense of self, really. So we're trying to extricate ourselves from that through grace, which includes accepting the brokenness and facing it and working with it and all that. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I think that I, what I would like to ask is, um, so th through the through the process of healing trauma, I've experienced a lot of trauma as a young child and in my adulthood. And I'm getting to a point in my healing journey and through recovery and Al-Anon of, um, of having forgiveness and moving on from resentment. And wanting to move out into the world, into that action that's talked about with, you know, Richard Rohr, Center for Action and Contemplation, and, and, and bringing um, that healing to the world. And I find for me personally, I tend to um, shut down and not trusting others quite often and, and like feeling a lot of fatigue from being around uh, like strangers or people I'm just getting to know. And so I, I guess my question is like, can you, do you have suggestions of, yeah. you know, moving from those like real life impacts of trauma into action? Yes. I have a few thoughts. I'll pretend we're in therapy. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you told me that's okay. So I'll always talk about therapy. You know, for one thing I think is really helpful. This part of you that's still nervous around people. This part of you is guarded. It's a part of you that's trying to take care of you. She really is, because she was so hurt by how deeply you were hurt. She's hyper vigilant that it's going to happen again. And to her, everyone you're with is potentially someone that'll do it again. So the idea here would be is to thank her for working so hard to take care of you. But to tell her that she's kind of overstating the case. <laughs> that not everybody is the person who incested her. Not everyone is the one who betrayed her. Not everyone is. And some people are. You got to be careful. Yeah. So you got to be careful. See? So that's the first. The next thing is this. The very fact you shared that with me, you at least feel I must at least be safe enough to have shared it with. Not only that, others have listened in. So you shared <laughs> it with all of them too. And you don't seem scared. You know? So you must feel that you're in good company. Mm. Yeah. Good company, like a, a gathering of uh, infinitely love broken people like you, like me. The next step is this, is what you're doing right now. Find somebody that you sense really has your best interest at heart. Okay. 
and know that that's that's real. And also based on the relationship, it might be a lover, it might be a, a friend, a spouse, a dear friend, a, a brother, sister, whoever it is, or trust, that's the point, they're trustworthy. Tell them about this fear. Don't keep it a secret, because sometimes there's shame around things like this. We keep it a secret. And tell them this. And then start expanding your repertoire. Start expanding your repertoire. And who else would I list among the trustworthy people? And uh, and also, if you go to meetings, notice that meetings are trustworthy. And when someone shares recovery, strength, and hope before a whole room full of people, see? and uh, uh, the room is full of people that's capable of doing a hurtful thing, but the person trusts they, they were gathered by grace not to do the hurtful thing. And so I think those are, those are two things that are very helpful. The part that does this is trying to take care of you. But she she overstates her case and prevents you from stepping forward because you have a right to live your life. And if you keep listening to her, she'll win because it's based on fear. It's yeah. really based on fear. And so how to, the antidote is the trust, but it's judicious trust. You're not naive. Right. You know? So so um, Jesus, Jesus said, be wise as a serpent and simple as a dove. Jesus was street smart. He was nobody's. Look what happened to him. He got executed. Yeah. <laughs> but he, he did it with utter clarity. Greater love than this has no one. See? But be, some people are so street smart, they forget to be simple as a dove. They become cynical. They become jaded. And other people are so dove-like, they're naive. See? They get taken advantage of over and over and over again, ritualistic abandonment. So we're trying to learn this healthy balance between trust slowly growing your repertoire of trustworthy people, learning to trust the skill set of picking up the first signs of when someone's not trustworthy. So you can talk to them about it. If it doesn't go well, don't talk to them. So those would be some thoughts. My wife, Mary, in response to my question at one point, uh, I asked her, so when will you trust me again? And she said, trust is not given, Herb, it's earned. And I said, obviously, well, what's the, how, how will I earn it? And she said, with consistent behavior. <laughs> yes. She's a tough Irish lady from South Chicago. <laughs> when I first started, when I first started being with Maureen out of this divorce, it was, I, was on, I was in bad shape, really. And we were very, very close. She had been alone for a long time. She had a trauma history, AA and all of that. And she said to, she said to me, uh, she said, you know, I'm used to being alone. I like being alone, but I don't want to be alone with you in the same room with me. Mm -hmm. She's you're hiding back in a cave somewhere. And she said, I won't do this. <laughs> she said, you need help. I don't know if I need, she said, trust me, you need help. And I went into very intensive therapy for dissociative disorder and severe trauma, saved my life. Mm -hmm. And I was able to show up at the feeling level with myself, with her, my daughters. I couldn't when they were growing up. I didn't know how to, mm -hmm. I didn't know I knew how to do that, really. And that's what it really is. That trustworthy behavior is the vulnerability of owning your stuff and stepping forward and the constancy of, um, that and it stabilizes yeah it's good you used a phrase that i'd never heard you use before jim and you said we are love broken people that's yeah. a very apt connection to what you just said thank yeah, you it so is, yeah. mm -hmm.
I would like to know of all of them, which is the first Thomas Merton book I should read. I need to put it on the stack of other books I have to read. I, I understand. But, I, you know, which one do I put on the top? I understand. I have some thoughts to get started. There's a little book called Thoughts in Solitude. And it's a little, each chapter is only like one page long. And it gives you a very good uh, taste of, of Thomas Merton, I think. Another book is, it's good to read is a, there's a collection of essays called, um, uh, I think it's called No Man is an Island. Oh, it's called Disputed Questions. Disputed Questions and it's essays. And one of those essays is a philosophy of solitude. It's being like the intimacy of aloneness. And you get, you get a feeling of that. His classic work is New Seeds of Contemplation. Yeah. To be patient. Also his journals, The Sign of Jonas, which is the journals he kept in the monastery. It's very, some, some, of, some of the lovely, there's also a lovely book called The Intimate Merton and it's journal selection. Some of his richest stuff are journal entries. So you would, can see why I said, which is the first one. I, I, I would say thoughts in solitude. Take thoughts in solitude. Take thoughts in solitude. And what I would suggest is read thoughts in solitude as Lexio Divina. And when you finish it, take a few days break and read it again. <laughs> and repeat until death. <laughs> <laughs> and keep a sense of humor. Thank you very much. Jim. And when you're dying, have someone read it to you while you're dying with a smile. <laughs> All right. My question is: um, Can you always heal? And there's often a lot of emphasis on your ego and your ego needs. But what about the cases where the child was asked to take care of the mother and they actually don't know how to, their, what their needs are? Yes. Yeah. There's, again, a short response to a big question. <laughs> first of all, let, let's say about healing first. Let's say, first of all, that from God's point of view, you're infinitely healed. And what you're learning to do is to accept that. And with God's grace, um, you know, walk the walk in that. Sometimes I share with people, you know, it's very interesting how faithfully unfaithful we are. I don't know about you, but we all have our little compromised patterns. You know, we're, we're really into it. We're so faithfully unfaithful. And yet we're also unfaithfully faithful. See, if we weren't unfaithfully faithful, we wouldn't be here. We'd be off getting drunk or something. I don't know what we'd be doing. <laughs> See, but notice in our fidelity that has us here, we're unfaithfully faithful to being here. And we walk our walk. Now, if there's childhood trauma or abandonment, it goes deeper. Because let's say... Uh, as a child, your assignment was to take care of or be there for the mother who wouldn't take care of you. And so the person then takes that on as an internalized uh, role they're to play in life. And they discover, even though they, they know when they say it, it's not true. It has a mind of its own. It has a mind of its own. And there can be deep emotions behind it, ritualistic reenactment 
Okay. And so really it's a therapy question. Sometimes you can think it through and write it out and think, but so this is what therapy is all about. Really. You sit with somebody at the feeling level who helps you unpack that. Also for the adult you with God's grace to talk to that part of you that still believes that. And to, first of all, let her know you understand her. No wonder she believes it. It was ingrained deeply in her. The earlier the trauma, the more the trauma was repeated, the more the perpetrator showed no remorse, the more there was no rescuer. And the younger you were when it happened, that you depended on the very person who was doing it, the deeper the trauma goes. And the deeper the walk out of it. And so sometimes we, we need the help of somebody who's kind of trained to help us kind of work, work that through. This, this, is, this is where spirituality touches psychotherapy, I think. It's a good example of it. Yeah. Thank you. Spirituality and therapy is kind of what I wanted to ask about. I've done a lot of um, searching, as we've talked about here, trying to fit gods into the glass slipper that I carry around. And it has taken kind of a breaking down of all of that to be able to see the thread that it or the more there's more overlap, I think, than than disparity between the things I've studied when you get to the core of it. I'm wondering because you mentioned not from you mentioned Maslow peak experience. Yeah, <laughs> I get echoes of the same kind of perennial truth, I guess, in psychology right. that I've found in religion. Like I think of William James or Fromm or Maslow or Kant. Sure. And they use different language. And so I'm curious if you think or if you feel or whatever, experience it more as an evolutionary, you know, veriditas, expansion, growth or if they're echoes of the same thing, more of a Joseph Campbell depends on the lens. Yes, yes. It's a big question. I can respond, I can wait to look at it. This is why I divided my talk up into the psychological level, the religious level, and the contemplative level. Because what you find in really solid psychotherapy, existential therapy, humanistic therapy, psychodynamic therapy, object relations therapy, model therapy. They're really uh, the healing of the layered interiority of the self in its inherent value, like you're worth saving. See? And, but the, the, the infinite dimension of that is latent. See, it's not, it's not overtly expressed. But there's an innate value to, to life itself. Why are parents smitten by the birth of their newborn? Because it has a value that cannot be calculated. And that a value abides and somehow we've lost touch with it. So therapists can go down through the layers of this. It's deeply, I found that too, being a therapist, I found it studying it. I found it to be deeply spiritual. The next issue is this. But then a certain point, then the person says, well, what about this wondrous mystery of myself? What's the origin of this mystery? And is there something about the, uh, the beginning of trans, this is transpersonal psychology. There's something in the human spirit that's open to transcendence. 
And any model of psychology that excludes it is an incomplete model. See? From really me to be whole implies that I break the closed horizon of conditions and I experientially open out upon a boundaryless mystery that's giving itself to me. And that's the touching point. So what sometimes happens then, how we look at this, sometimes people go through therapy. What you want is in therapy is a good therapist. You also want to, ther if, you're, if you're on a spiritual path and you say, I want my spirituality to be a resource in my therapy, my openness to my higher power to come. The therapist might say, I don't know how to do that. Myself. So sometimes people have a spiritual director and the, the therapist, and uh, you have to be careful not to play one against the other. But you, you're, once in a while, you can find the same person who can do both. You can find a contemplative clinician or a spiritual director who's savvy to psychological issues. So you come in for therapy and the person, your spiritual director might say to you, you know, the way you talk sometimes, I think it's possible you're depressed. And I'm not trained with that. The sense of hopelessness you talk about, the sense that you don't matter, the sense of isolation, the sense of tired all the time. And I really recommend one of those spiritual things you could do is look into that. You know, because it's, it's the spiritual and the, the psychological are always bound up together. So those would be some perspectives. So I, I see the deepening of depth psychology uh, opens out upon the divine, but it's implicit. Uh, faith explicates it. See? And what we're looking for is the integration of those two in ourself. See? Because, I mean, you can become neurotic. You can be very neurotic, have become, have a lot of mystical experiences. You're a neurotic mystic. <laughs> <laughs> Your mysticism would go better if you do some homework and take care of yourself. You know what I mean? So we're, we're always committed to wholeness, always kind of sifting it out in, in the presence of the mystery. And there's just some ways I would look at it. Yeah. Thank yeah, you so would, much. That would be the whole uh, area of emotional sobriety would be that balance exactly. between uh, the emotions and the yearning for the connection with the spirit, right? That's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. My question is kind of, um, it's about intentions. So I've learned from this, you know, I've learned what my defects of characters are through working the steps. I've learned I'm selfish. I've learned I'm defiant. I've learned that I'm passive aggressive at times. I'm avoiding. And I really, in my honest, oh, uh, uh, how can I say, yearning for being the channel. I want to be kind. I want to be helpful. I want to be useful. I want to be generous. And I, I just want to ask you about, yeah, I can set intentions, but how do you set intentions? And how do you take, uh, yeah, how do you set intentions to actually mm -hmm. channel what we receive? Yes. from the divine. Yes, yes. Here's one way I put it. Regarding these spiritual things, there's that in us that sees it, or we wouldn't be moved by it. And then there's that in us that doesn't see it yet. Mm. 
is the part that still gets reactive, is still so forth. And so the intention, let's say the purity of the intention, how I put it, one, one good, what helps me with the intention is all things considered, what's the most loving thing I can do right now for myself, my body, my mind, for this person, this family, this community, for this flower, this bird, all things considered. Because sometimes it's not obvious what the most loving thing is. And then with that intention to ask for the grace to follow through with the grace to do it. And what we find when we do this is that we're a work in progress. We're a work in progress. And what we do is recovery, I guess, too. We meet ourselves. We meet ourselves. And we meet the part that can't do it yet. And so we catch ourselves in the act of perpetuating violence on the part of us that needs to be loved the most. Mm. See? The part that's still resentful, see? the part that's, that still withholds intimacy, the part that still blames, see? and we attack it. See? We attack it. See? I wish you'd go away. I wish you'd kind of like this. Or we abandon it by giving up on ourselves. You know, this whole path stuff. I'm gonna eat a whole tray of brownies and do something I can handle. You know what I mean? I, 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 I can't do this stuff. I've got to watch reruns and go, go to bed. So what we're always doing is there's a part of us that sees it. And then we're circling back around endlessly to touch the hurting places with love. Because the resentful part, again, these, these resistances are trying to survive by taking care of you. Because wherever there's resentment, there's almost always something to be resentful of, and you're not imagining it. You really were wronged. You really were hurt. And therefore, by understanding and talking to the part that resents, there's truth in the resentment. You're not making it up. You didn't choose the most angelic person in the world and choose them to resent. Because what you did to me lingers on within me. And so what you do first then is you be, be sure that you, you do your best in setting boundaries with that. You acknowledge the resentment, but then you say this, it's true there is the resentment, but I don't want it to be the underlying energy that runs my life. So not only do I want to forgive the person who did their thing that I resent, knowing that I've learned to set boundaries with them, they no longer have access to me. I set boundaries. Love is the God-given emotion that establishes the boundary that was violated. See? And so you set the boundary, you don't do it like this. Then secondly, you learn to forgive yourself for not being able to get past resenting. Because mm -hmm. that's your dependence on the mercy of God. See? Mm -hmm. See? It isn't as if God's going to say, you know, um, I'm, I'm sure hope that you work out this resentment thing. Before the buzzer goes off and you die, because uh, you know you're, you know, you're <laughs> and uh, you you better quicken up the pace because this isn't looking good. You know, it isn't like that. <laughs> the image I use in the Merton material is: let's say your whole life was a temper. You have a, a temper. You work on it. And you just can't help yourself. And in the hospital, your last act on this earth is throwing a bedpan, and then you die. See? This is regrettable. <laughs> because one, you could have hit somebody and you were hoping for a better exit. 
<laughs> here's the question. Did you throw it knowing God infinitely loves people who don't throw bedpans? God infinitely loves people who do. <laughs> it's not licensed to throw more bedpans. Paul says, it's go out and sin all the more, God forbid. See, But my weakness in throwing the bedpan has no say in who I am in God's eyes. See? And so in a sense then, you'd be canonized as patron saint of bedpan throwers. <laughs> There'd be a huge shrine there shaped like a huge bedpan. People come on pilgrimage with flowers. <laughs> and you'd be the patron saint of the broken. The song Amazing Grace. You know, guy took slave ships. And brought slaves over amazing. I once was lost, but once I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. see? And, uh, you know, there you go. Thomas, someone said about Thomas Merton, he was a gentle man because God was so gentle with him. And by the way, another good idea for the first book of Merton would be the uh, Seven Story Mountain. It's his own brokenness. And by the way, just before he died, he fell in love with his nurse. Mm -hmm. Wrote a volume of love poetry to her. And, uh, and and uh, he was 53 and she was 18. No fool like an old fool. <laughs> and he went over to Asia, got electrocuted and died. Mm -hmm. Patron saint of the broken. Mm -hmm. Completely accepted, you know. We're all in this together. Yeah. So anyway, those are some thoughts. Thanks, Jim, very Thank much. You. Thank you. Oh. Thank you very much. Explain magical thinking and how it may get in the way of spirituality relationship with God. Yes. Uh, Thomas Merton had an essay called Cargo Theology. And where Cargo Theology comes from the fact that there were missionaries in some pr primitive area with, with indigenous peoples and so on. And they saw that once a week, the missionaries in their village would go down to the shore and a biplane would land on the water and bring over supplies, bring over cargo and then take off. And so the villagers went down to wait at the shore because they thought if they waited at the shore, that's what made the plane come. <laughs> and that's magical thinking. Yeah, right. That's magical thinking. Right. On the other hand, there's a phrase that I believe it was coined by us psychologist in San Francisco, Wellwood, and he uses the term spiritual bypass, where people go to spirituality rather than dealing with the emotional and psychological problems. Yeah, right, exactly, yes. May comment on that, Jim, please? Yeah, yes, yes, because well, let's put it another way, the heart of the matter is this, I think, in a way. Magical thinking is this, is if I, if I perform this ritual, or if I say this prayer, if I believe in this thing, then by virtue of having done that, then God's union will be granted to me. Mm -hmm. And what it really, this is the difference between religion and magic. Mm -hmm. Magic seeks to draw power to itself. How to access spiritual power you know, for the enrichment of your own life. See? At the essence of religion is a perpetual surrender to this infinite love surrendered over to you. And so magical thinking is a subtle form of ego-based empowerment. That through certain rituals, through certain things, I will attain certain powers or abilities that will allow me to do things that I couldn't do without it, and so on. And that's what's magical about it. 
it's it's ego based, and faith is 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 uh, this unitive base. It's not like that. Yeah. There was a psychologist in West Los Angeles, as I hear the story, that had a big sign over the entrance to his office, and it said, "Nobody's coming." Yeah, that's right. Nobody's yeah. coming. Waiting and, for you to go. Yeah. And from, oh, yeah, you know about it. And, and so when I took that into meditation, nobody's coming. I'm the one I'm waiting for. Yeah. I'm the one to, sh I'm, I'm waiting to show up in my life and take responsibility for it. Yeah. yeah. God's not coming. Jim made the point. I hope you heard it. God's not coming. God's already fully present. <laughs> be funny. Yes, I would agree. I want to add to nuance a bit. God's not coming because God's already here. Because God's the infinity, the immediacy of our being here. See, So God's not coming. But God does come in this sense. Uh, turning to see a flock of birds descending, knowing love in my own heart, looking down into a child's face. There is the granting of the quickening that comes mm -hmm. over. And God comes in that sense, mm. in that sense, see, in that sense. And then since God grants it, then God waits for me to join God. I have to step forward, you know, and, and join it. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Walking hand in hand on the broad highway. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly and right. so, Jim, I really appreciate your coming and joining us and sharing yourself with us on this day. I would like to bring it to a conclusion at this point formally with a slide or two and the prayer of St. Francis. Beautiful. And you're welcome to join me. Lighting the path for others. Our way of life. Bill says, our heads in the clouds and our feet on the ground. That's the perfect combination. Head in the clouds, feet on the ground, becoming a lantern. That's our step 11 in order to light the path. That's our step 12. This is the intentional consciousness practice. And, and Jim says, and what's one of his mantras, we we, every person on a spiritual path has a spiritual practice and they practice their practice. And when they're faithful to their practice, their practice is faithful to them. Right. Let's please uh, join uh, to the extent that you want to, out loud or quietly, you're all on mute. This prayer of transformation. This is the prayer allegedly written by St. Francis. Of course, he didn't, but it's got his spirit and principles in it. This is the turnaround from that self-centeredness to other-centeredness. This is the process. These are the promises. Listen to the turning. Listen to the transformation. Listen to the promise. Lord, make me a channel of your peace. That where there is hatred, I may bring love. That where there is wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. That where there is discord, I may bring harmony. That where there is error, I may bring truth. That where there is doubt, I may bring faith. That where there is despair, I may bring hope. That where there are shadows, I may bring light. That where there is sadness, I may bring joy. Lord, grant that I may seek rather to comfort than to be comforted, to understand than to be understood, 
to love than to be loved. For it is by self-forgetting that one finds, it is by forgiving that one is forgiven. It is by dying that one awakens to eternal life. Amen.